mail it to a friend in another part of the country, put it on a bulletin board, or just know that we have this money available, okay? Now we can begin our program. Uh, tonight's program is an evening of African-American autobiography, and I'd like to start by thanking the New School for their help with this program, especially giving us this wonderful space. I'm going to turn the program over to Henry Louis Gates, Jr., and he will take it from there, and thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me okay in the back? I'd like to thank um, Pamela Pierce for arranging this session and inviting us all here, and I'd like to thank you all for coming. So good evening. I'm Henry Louis Gates, Jr., and it gives me great pleasure to serve as the moderator for our panel this evening on African-American autobiography. Of all the various genres of literature comprising the African-American literary tradition, none has played a role or function more central than has black autobiography. Ours is one of the very few literary traditions in world literature in which an author publishes as a first book her or his autobiography, thereby establishing her or his presence and career as an author through this autobiographical act, rather than as for most other authors in most other traditions, at or near the end of a productive career or at least after an author's other works have, as it were, generated sufficient interest in the life that has resulted in the world of words to be found in their works of imaginative literature. A familiar example of this phenomenon, of course, is Maya Angelou, who emerged as an author in America with her marvelously compelling and lyrical, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. But this is true as well for two of our panelists this evening. Claude Brown, and Itabari and Jerry, whose own contributions to the tradition are considerable, and Jerry's text playing a role for our generation of black intellectuals that Brown's Manchild in the Promised Land played at the cusp of a civil rights era that was giving way to the birth of the black power era. Deprived of access to literacy, to the tools of citizenship, denied the rights of selfhood by law, philosophy, and pseudoscience, and denied as well the possibility even of possessing a collective history as a people. Black Americans, commencing with the slave narratives in 1760, published their individual histories in astonishing numbers in a larger attempt to narrate the collective history of the race, as we called it. If the individual black self could not exist before the law, it could and would be forged in language as a testimony at once to the integrity of the black self and against the social and political evils that delimited individual and group equality for all African Americans. The will to power for black Americans was the will to write. And the predominant mode that this writing would assume was the autobiography, <clears throat> the shaping of a black self in words. And while fiction would seem to be the major genre practiced by black writers today, the impulse to testify, to chart the peculiar contours of the individual protagonist on the road to becoming clearly undergirds even the fictional tradition of black letters. As Sarah Wright's marvelous first novel, This Child's Gonna Live, demonstrates with, with such power 
and with such force. Constructed upon an ironic foundation of autobiographical narratives written by ex-slaves, the African-American tradition, more clearly and directly than most traditions, traces its lineage to the act of declaring the existence of a surviving, enduring ethnic self, to this impulse of autobiography. If autobiography is our predominant literary genre, however, biography, the charting of another's life and times, has not emerged as historically as a major form of scholarship or writing within the tradition, despite the fact that over 400 collective encyclopedic biographical, biographical dictionaries were published between 1806 and 1950, very few individual biographies of black subjects have been written by black authors, as if the fabrication of one's own life was too precious, too crucial to be muddled with the registering of the contours of someone else's life. <clears throat> that is until Arnold Rampersad published his monumental two-volume Life of Langston Hughes, a most compelling work written with the sophistication of the novelist's craft, recreating so vividly for us Hughes's fears and aspirations, his choices and his frustrations, his dreams and achievements. In the history of black scholarship, few gestures have been as seminal, as crucial to the shaping of an entirely new field as Rampersad's accomplishment has been. Dozens of black bio biographical projects are now underway, thanks in large part to Rampersad's subtlety and grace in recreating Langston Hughes. With this splendid group, two autobiographers, a novelist, and a biographer, we shall explore this evening the wonders and the ironies of the black tradition in autobiography. Our format tonight will be to ask each of our panelists to deliver opening remarks for about five minutes. In addition, Claude Brown, Itabari and Jerry, and Sarah Wright will read from their works for another three to five minutes in order to bring black autobiography, as it were, to life for us. We will proceed in alphabetical order, but first, let me introduce our panelists. I returned to my hotel room last night after seeing Spunk at the public with Arnold Rampersad and his wife, Marvina White, to learn that Sammy Davis Jr. had died. Now, given our topic for this evening's panel, I could not help but recall Sammy Davis Jr.'s first autobiography, Yes, I Can, published in 1965, which quickly became a bestseller. Such a bestseller, in fact, that I was able to purchase it even in our local newsstand in the village of Piedmont, West Virginia, soon after the Watts riots. Davis's tale of woe and triumph was inspirational for me and led me to search for other black autobiographies. Searching for a key to unlock the madness of American racism and strategies for my own survival of it, I avidly read first the autobiography of Malcolm X, then Claude Brown's Manchild in the Promised Land, as did everyone else in my family, and from the, judging by its sales, almost everyone else in the reading public of the United States. It was through Manchild that I first encountered the careful record of a sensitive and articulate black adolescent, and, and an adolescent's quest for selfhood and dignity 
in an urban world so very far away from my village in the hills of West Virginia, yet so universally applicable to the terrors that every adolescent encounters on the crooked path to adulthood, evidenced by the fact that his book sold three million copies and was translated into 14 languages, even in that year, 1965. Mr. Brown has received several honors and awards, including the Annisfield Wolf Book Award, which three of our panelists have won, an NEA grant in 1983, and a Penn NEA syndicated fiction award that same year. In 1987, he was inducted into the New Jersey State Literary Hall of Fame. He has published essays in such places as Esquire and the New York Times Magazine. And a second book, The Children of Ham, was published in 1976, which concerned abandoned teenagers. Three years ago, he narrated a um, highly praised TV documentary on crime in America. Manchild, I'm pleased to say, appeared in a new edition in paperback in 1988. Itabari and Jerry. He's a graduate of Boston University and Columbia University School of Journalism. Has been the recipient of several major fellowships and reporting awards. Before joining the staff of the LA Times, she was a writer, arts critic, and essayist for the Miami Herald. Prior to that, a reporter for the Greenville News and a reporter and producer for National Public Radio in Boston. As a professional singer and actress, she has also performed across the United States and Jerry now lives in Los Angeles. Every Goodbye Ain't Gone, subtitle Family Portraits and Personal Escapades, began as a novel, she tells us, and ends up as a literal truth. Many might not have believed the portrayals otherwise, she confesses. My aunt, especially the day she stepped off a plane draped in white ermine with her hair dyed green for St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> my search through small southern towns <clears throat> to track down my grandfather's killer, and me, African, East Indian, Amerindian, English, and French, the great-great-great-granddaughter of a notorious rum-running English, English pirate named Sam Lord, his castle, now a resort in Barbados. Wise and wisecracking, and Jerry vividly evokes the cultural life of middle-class African-Americans and transplanted West Indians in Brooklyn and Harlem during the 50s and 60s the effects, both hilarious and tragic, of racism on the members of her family and her own awakening identity as a woman of color. She recalls her wild days at an all-girls doo-wop group, <laughs> her heartbreaking affair with a man too good to be true and too selfish to stay away, the anguish of finding a decent hairdresser in a strange town, and her lifelong love-hate relationship with the New York subway system. She brings to life gangsters and Harvard graduates, old guard Jamaican princesses and feminist sexual pioneers, valiant losers and bold new winners in this first book, which by addressing such themes as coming of age, falling in love, leaving home, and family conflict, speaks to the humanity in us all. Arnold Rampersad took the PhD in English at Harvard. He has taught at the University of Virginia, Stanford, Harvard, Rutgers, and Columbia, where he is, for another month, the Zora Neale Hurston Professor of English. In the fall, he will become a professor of English at Princeton and director of the American Studies program there. Arnold Rampersad is the author of four books, including Melville's Israel Potter, The Art and Imagination of W.E.B. Du Bois, and the two-volume Life of Langston Hughes. 
He's also edited a book with Deborah McDowell at the University of Virginia entitled Slavery and the Literary Imagination. Included among his several honors and awards are the Annisfield Wolf Book Award, the College Language Association Creative Scholarship Award, and the Holty Prize, and the inclusion of volume one of his Life of Langston Hughes as one of the best books of 1986 by the New York Times Book Review. He, <coughs> excuse me. He has also received fellowships from NEH, Rockefeller, and Guggenheim. And finally, Sarah Elizabeth Wright. Sarah Wright was born in Maryland and studied at Howard, Cheney State, the University of Pennsylvania, the New School, Long Island University, SUNY, and the National Association of Poetry Therapy. Sarah Wright is, in my opinion, one of the true pioneers of the contemporary black women's literary movement. Her first book, Give Me a Child, co-written with Lucy Smith and published in 1955, was a bold experimental work that combined poetry with art in a fresh and illuminating manner. As a major figure in the Har Harlem Writers Guild, the American Society of African Culture, and the New School, she organized three crucial conferences, including the first and second national conferences of black writers in 1959 and 1965, respectively, the latter of which focused on black women in American literature. In 1966, she published a seminal essay entitled The Negro Woman in Black American Literature. Three years later, she published her amazing first novel, This Child's Gonna Live. This novel propelled her to national acclaim. Touted by the Times Book Review as a small masterpiece, the novel earned the praise of writers and critics from coast to coast. John Killens called it a prose poem of excruciating beauty. Ebony Magazine called, it, called her a giant writer, saying, when all scores are in, James Joyce will, just, will sit just at your knees. <laughs> the Baltimore Sun called it the most graphic account of life on the Eastern Shore since Frederick Douglass published his memoirs. John Heinrich Clark declared that her novel broke new ground and re-echoed like thunder in the mind. Alice Childress said Sarah's pen, pen is a dagger piercing its way to truth. And Rosa Guy saw it as evidence to confirm her contention that the black woman in America will write the greatest of the American novels. This Afro-American novel was a tour de force, and it helped to bring for her and for our literature wide acclaim two McDowell Colony Fellowships for Creative Writing, the 1975 Award for Fiction, novelist, um, I'm sorry, the 1975 Award for Fiction from the New York State Creative Artist Public Service Program, the 1976 Novelist Poet Award from the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at Howard University, et cetera, et cetera. This Child's Gonna Live, long out of print, was republished in 1986 by the Feminist Press and published in London, New Zealand, and Australia in 1988 by Collins. Her poetry has been anthologized, and she is the subject of several recent theses and dissertations. Among her many awards and honors are the 1988 Middle Atlantic Writers Association Distinguished Writer Award and the 1988 Zora Neale Hurston Award for Literary Excellence. And now it is my pleasure to yield the floor to our splendid panelists who will proceed, as I said, in alphabetical order with no further introduction. After Ms. Wright's presentation, the panelists have agreed to answer your questions. Thank you very much.
slide back. Um, it's indeed a pleasure to be here this evening, get an opportunity to uh, share my thoughts on the African-American autobiography with you. Um, of course, the African-American autobiography derives from the slave narrative tradition. And it's a testament to the indomitability of the African-American spirit through centuries of captivity in a brutally hostile and oppressive land. Um, it, it derives also from an, an oral tradition coming from, which is what the slave narrative is, of course. And in my case, um, it came from so many years of listening to my father <coughs> and my mother talk about what had happened down home. Now, most of you who are familiar with uh, African-American culture know that most of us who are urban dwellers or who've been urban dwellers for the past 50 years had our origins down home. Down home, of course, was the rural South, uh, Alabama, South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, and, uh, places like Mississippi, et cetera. Well, it's like uh, the folks who came up there uh, in those regions who were black had um, a almost horrid <coughs> history, you know, almost totally horrid. Uh, you'd hear stories that you wouldn't believe and uh, you knew it was true. You knew it because it made you understand the behavior of your parents, which you found humiliating at times as a child. Um, but then uh, in my case, which was not usual, a bit unusual, I had an opportunity to sort of share that experience by spending a year in the rural South, South Carolina in 1940, from 1946 to 1947 when I was um, nine years old. Well, and, and then I had the experience of being exposed to that uh, slave narrative enriched by also listening to the tales of an even more incredible existence, incredibly horrible that is, from my grandparents who had come up just after slavery. And um, you know, they, they told these stories around the a fireplace at night um, in an atmosphere, usually to a kerosene lamp because we didn't have electricity we didn't have running water. This was the real, rural, almost primitive South. Um, and it was, it was almost like uh, listening to another world in a far off place. And in, in uh, becoming uh, receptive to this oral tradition, you learn to, to hear a kind of sing-song rhythm in it. When, when they told, when my grandparents told me the stories of, uh, of Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, um, which would have been uh, Master Charlie or, or Miss Ann, <laughs> what have you. Uh, they, they would almost sometimes go into a whisper, but the stories, each phase had a sort of special nuance which was reflected in the tone and in the rhythm of what they told. They, I mean, they made these stories sing, laugh, and cry. And when I started writing, and maybe it was my good fortune uh, not to be a writer. I mean, I never you know, took any uh, literature courses. Uh, I only took very little ling uh, English in, at Howard University and in high school. 
And I became a writer by accident. And so I suppose all I really knew about writing was, um, was the stories that I'd heard, how to tell a story. Yeah? And uh, I knew how to tell a story, how to, how to make a story sing, a sentence sing, how to make a phrase sing, how to make it laugh, how to make it cry on the written page. Now, I, I became a writer accidentally. How? Because somebody asked me to write a book. Yeah. And it, it took uh, uh, a lot of <laughs> persuasion yeah, on my part. Of course, I used to write for little magazines like Descent, what have you, in the uh, late 50s. But uh, I had no intention of attempting to write a book. And then one day, <coughs> what happens is that uh, I was approached by senior editor at Macmillan who said, hey, I'd like for you to write a book. And I'm saying, hey, man, like, you know, I can't write a book. Hold your money. And uh, <laughs> I said, I wouldn't even know how to go about outlining a book. And uh, he says, oh, there's nothing to it. You know, all you, I said, because I told him that, you know, the longest thing I've ever written has been a short story or an essay the length of about 20 pages. He says, oh, well, that's easy. You know, you can write a book <coughs> simply because there's nothing to it. To write a book, all you have to do is, like, write about um, 20 of those short stories or essays <laughs> of, of 20 pages in length and just string them together. And you say, oh, yeah, is that simple, man? Well, like, you know, I might try it, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to be busy, man. I'm in school. I'm, this is my sophomore year at Howard. And uh, I'm going to be working in the post office full time. And I really won't have time to do it. So, uh, you know, I can't take your money. And uh, he says, well, you know, we'll give you a couple years to do it. And not only that, can't you use $2,000? <laughs> and at this time, <laughs> for a, straight, a struggling student <coughs> in 1960, uh, 61, uh, $2,000 seemed to be all the money in the world. <laughs> you know, so after about uh, the third scotch, you say, okay, man, it's your money, show me where to sign. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're committed. And not only that, you are contractually bound. And, um, you know, so <laughs> I, I had no idea uh, how to go about doing this. And then, um, you know, I, I had contracted to write a book about Harlem. I said, well, you know, I know a little bit about Harlem, but not enough to write a book <laughs> on. And um, then one day, you know, and I went along procrastinating for about six months. Then one day, I was seeing someone off at, at, the, uh, at the train station in Washington, D.C. And they used to have these in the restaurants and drugstores. They used to have these little paperback racks. You know, they wouldn't have them now because people steal them all. But uh, they were sort of <laughs> free, and, you know, the paperbacks were about 95 cents. And um, I picked up one. I thought I'd... I'd read everything that Richard Wright had written, but I picked up a collection of short stories titled Eight Men by Richard Wright and went home to the dorm, opened the book, read it that night, and, uh, and I, when I finished, I finished about 4 o'clock in the morning, I got up and put the uh, first sheet of paper in the typewriter and started to write. Uh, I didn't know what at that time. It turned out to be Man Child in the Promised Land. And, um, and there I was writing before I knew what I was going to write, how long I was going to write. And um, then suddenly, I guess after about uh, a dozen pages, I said, you know, uh, what am I writing? What is this book going to be about? <laughs> I said, well, they wanted a book about Harlem. I said, well, you know, I've written, um, I've written a few articles about Harlem and essays. So and why don't I write a book about growing up in Harlem? That's my life story. And uh, I can make a book out of it. And that's really the only thing I know enough about to write a book on. <laughs> and, and thus we had Manchild.
<laughs> now, there were, there were uh, some difficult times. <coughs> I think the reason I uh, would choose to write an autobiography, which may be the reason that most people would choose to write one, is as a first book, is that it's the easiest book you can write. <laughs> you know, it's like it requires uh, minimal research, if, yeah. any, uh, <laughs> if any at all. So this is sort of like the lazy writer's first book. Yeah. Um, so I, I sat down and, and I started uh, writing Man Child, and I thought it was going to be a snap. And in a way, it, it was. But, uh, not, uh, but there were certain things, uh, certain factors that I hadn't counted on, such as, you know, you have to do a lot of a psychological regression when you're doing this, and uh, it can be difficult if you don't have time to just concentrate on that for, say, a year or six months. I think I could have written Man Child in about three months, you know, had I had nothing else to do. But going to school and working full time, and I'd just gotten married and all that, uh, it didn't allow for a lot of time. But then, I, you know, I was, go I was going to school, and I'd be in the post office writing, and an idea would come to me. I'd jump off and go in the swing room and write down something or in the... Uh, men's room, and then I'd, I'd write it down on toilet paper, and I'd come home, and I'd have all my pocket stuff with toilet paper, and I'd have to transcribe it, <laughs> all this sort of thing, and I'd have 8 o'clock class in the morning. And then um, what would happen is that I'd been thinking about something when I was a teenager, and I'd go into a class, and the prof would say, um, uh, Mr. Brown, are you prepared to uh, recite for us on the Ottoman Empire this morning? I was a political science major. And um, I'd say something like, nay, baby, not yet. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, uh, Mr. Brown, are you with us this morning? And, um, you know, and I'd say, oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. So-and-so, would you give me a moment or two to you know, get myself together? And he said, yeah, please do. <laughs> you know, and we'd come back. And this was going on for a long time because what would happen is that I'd go right from my, uh, my typewriter into the classroom, and uh, <laughs> I'm really still back there when I was 15 years old and speaking slang on the streets of Harlem. And that was the major difficulty for me in uh, writing this. And of course, there were some <coughs> painful things that you had to remember and didn't want to remember. But uh, you know, that was the main reason I chose uh, an autobiography. And it turned out to be um, very rewarding for me uh, emotionally, more so than financially. I only got $2,000 up front. <laughs> and which was okay for a first book back then. And, um, but of course, I, I suppose as you know, uh, it's been uh, uh, extremely more rewarding financially since then. So uh, I can go on, but I think I'll, Thank you. I'll turn it over to yeah. someone else. Will we read now? Yeah. Please. Okay, good. You want to read now? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we want you to read now. <laughs> yes. Okay, look, the, uh, the the section I chose to read from Manchild is uh, one that I feel is one of the most moving sections. First of all, I'd like to tell you something. It's like we never know. You see, the reason I, I had no intention of becoming a writer when I went to school. I went to, uh, I went to undergraduate school and graduated, and then I went to law school because I wanted to become a lawyer. And the reason I wanted to become a lawyer instead of a writer, and of course, the year I entered uh, law school was the year that uh, Manchild hit the bestseller list. And the reason I wanted to become a lawyer is because I said, well, you know, you write and you write and you never know what people think of your writing, you know? I mean, or if it really does anything, if it has any effect on the society, uh, on the mores, or, you know, on the problems of the society. And uh, so I said, I've got to do something where I know, you know, I'm, go I'm going to be effective. Where, you know, you go to court in a case, you either win or you lose as an attorney. So I went on to law school. And, um, 
<laughs> you know, I got a lot of letters when Man Child was published from people, fan mail, saying, you know, your book has changed my life and it will never, uh, it'll never be the same and all that. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, you know, but being a skeptic by nature, I'd say, yeah, but I wonder for how long, yeah? <laughs> and, uh, anyway, one day I decided to do a book on the evolution of opiate usage in America. <coughs> and I figured the best way to go about that would be to uh, consult with the experts, in quotes, uh, in the society. One of the first experts I wanted to talk to was Vincent Dole. Uh, Dr. Vincent Dole is the uh, inventor of the methadone programs in this country, which there's one in practically every country in the world today. <coughs> and I, I knew he was at, uh, I knew he was at, um, <coughs> excuse me, Rockefeller University. And I knew a couple people who knew him and I asked them to give me an introduction. <coughs> and they kept procrastinating about it. So after about six months, I became disgusted. Please forgive me, I've got a cold, but it's, I think it's on its way out. <laughs> just hasn't left soon enough, so bear with me. But anyway, it's like, um, you know, one day I got tired of this. I picked up the phone after about six months and uh, said, hello, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to speak to Dr. Vincent Doe. And to my surprise, uh, a voice said, okay, just a moment. And uh, then another voice came on and said, hello, Dr. Doe's office. I said, hello, um, my name is Claude Brown, and he doesn't know me, but I'd like to speak to Dr. Doe. And uh, the woman said, okay, just a moment. And then a voice came on and said, hey, uh, you know, hello, this is Vincent Doe. And I said, hey, Dr. Doe, um, you don't know me, but my name is Claude Brown. I'd like to, I'd like to speak to you. Uh, you know, I'd like to consult with you on a book I'm doing. I'm contemplating doing a book on the evolution of uh, opiate usage in America. And I think one of you're one of the most knowledgeable people in the country on the subject. And I'd like to consult with you. It wouldn't take more than about four hours of your time. We can do it whenever it's convenient for you. We can do it in a week, one hour a week, one hour every month, whatever. And so he says, okay, fine, uh, when would you like to do it? I said, whenever it's convenient, about, what about tomorrow? I said, tomorrow's fine. So I went <laughs> over there tomorrow and uh, the next day, and we sat and we talked for about four hours. I looked at my watch and I said, oh, Lord, I'm terribly sorry, and I was very apologetic. I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, Dr. Dole. I know you're, you're an extremely busy man, and uh, you know, I've wasted all your time. He said, no, that's okay. You know, I, I enjoyed the conversation. The man was you know, really fascinating to talk to. And uh, he says, uh, you know, we can do it again. I said, yeah, but look, if you'd grant me a, a, another t uh, interview, I'd, I'd do it in an hour. You know, we can do it in an hour and a, whenever <laughs> you want to. And he says, okay, uh, uh, when would you like to come back? I said, well, you know, whenever it's convenient for you. He says, what about tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> and then, then I became very suspicious. I said, you know, perhaps this is not dull. This might be some, <laughs> some <opiate>. this might <laughs> be some nut who is an imposter, you know, escaped from Funny Farm, who's here um, pretending to be Dr. Doe. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm gathering my things and I'm, and I'm ready to leave. And um, just as uh, I was about to leave, he said, oh, Mr. Brown, I, I, uh, I have a confession to make to you. And of course, I was puzzled about this. And I said, a confession? And he says, yes, he says, I knew who you were, you know, um, the moment you mentioned your name over the telephone. He says, as a matter of fact, you are responsible for the work I've been doing for the past 13 years. Uh -huh. And I said, oh, I thought you were working on the methadone program for the past 13 years. And he said, he said yes, um, I, I was, uh, I, I have been. He says, but uh, in 1965, when your book came out, I read it. And I was so moved by that book, by the chapter you titled The White Plague, <coughs> about heroin coming to Harlem that uh, when I put that book down, I said I had to do something. Mm -hmm. 
you know, about this problem. And that's when I started the methadon, uh, the methadon experiments. Therefore, indirectly, indirectly, you're responsible for the methadon program. I said, oh, Lord, I don't know if that's good or bad, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I did reach somebody, and I finally knew, you know, that man-child in the promised land had reached somebody. Okay, now that's, that's a, a section, but it's, uh, it's not, uh, it's not, long enough, and, and I, I don't think that's the most moving section, but what I think is the most moving section is what I'm about to read to you. Okay, and I'll do it rapidly since I told you that and took so much time. Okay, I never got too involved with drugs, but it gave me a pretty painful moment. I was walking down 8th Avenue and I saw somebody across the street. It was a familiar shape and a familiar walk. My heart lit up. The person looked like something was wrong with her, even though she was walking all right and still had her nice shape. It was sugar. She was walking in the middle of the street. I ran across the street and snatched her by the arm. I was happy. I knew she'd be happy to see me because I hadn't seen her in a long time. I said, Sugar, hey, baby, what you doing? You trying to commit suicide or something? Why don't you just go and take some sleeping pills? I think it would be less painful and would be easier on the street cleaners. I expected her to, to grab me and hug me and be just as glad to see me, but she looked around and said, oh, hi. Her face looked bad. She looked old, like somebody who had been crying a long time because they had lost somebody, like a member of the family had died. I said, what's wrong, baby? What's the matter? She looked at me and said, you don't know. Uh-uh, uh-uh. I looked at her and she said, yeah, baby, that's the way it is. I've got a Jones. And she dropped her head. Well, anyway, come on out of the street. I don't care, Claude, I just had a bad time. You know a nigga named Carrie who lives on 148th Street? I don't know him, why? He just beat me out of my last $5, and my Jones is on me, and it's on me something terrible. I feel so sick. I was so hurt and stunned, I just didn't know what to do. I said, come on, sugar, let me take you someplace where I know you can get some help. Look, there's a man in East Harlem, his name is Reverend Eddie, and he's been doing a lot of good work with young drug addicts, and I think he can help you. He could get you into Metropolitan Hospital or Manhattan General, one of the places where they've started treating drug addicts. Come on, you've got to get a cure, baby. You've got to get a, a cure, baby. That's, that life's not for you. I pulled on her and she said, Claude, Claude, I'm sick. There's only one thing you can do for me if you really want to help me. There's only one thing anybody can do for me right now, and that's loan me $5 to get me some stuff because I feel like I'm dying. Oh, Lord, I feel so bad. I looked at her and she was part of, and she was a part of my childhood. I just couldn't stand to see her suffer. I only had one $5 bill and some change. I said, look, baby, why don't you get off this thing because it's going to be the same story tomorrow. You'll just be delaying it until another day. Look, Claude, I'll go any place with you, but I can't go now. In a little while, I'm going to be laying down in the, in the street there holding my stomach and hoping a car runs over me before the pains get any worse. Shit, come on with me. <clears throat> I'm not going to give you another $5 to go and give it to somebody and uh, get beat again. Come, come on with me. Come on to 144th Street. I know somebody there who's going to, uh, who's got some drugs. And I understand it's pretty good. I'll get you some drugs and, and take care of that. Then we're going to see about doing something for you. Okay, you get, you get me high and I'll go any place with you after that. But first I want to go downtown. Uh, you can come with me uh, down around Times Square. I really appreciate this and I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you $10. Shit, I'll give you $20. <laughs> um, you're going to give me $20. Why don't you just go on and, no, no, I ain't got the money now. I got to go down there and turn a trick. 
and I'll give you $10 or, or $20. I'll give you uh, as much if, as you want. You need some money? I'll turn a few tricks for you tonight. I wanted to hit her when she said that because it meant she thought of me as somebody who might want to turn a trick, somebody who would accept her trick money. Uh, but I knew that it wasn't so much me. This was what she'd been into, and she probably turned a whole lot of tricks. She probably thought of everybody that way now as somebody she could turn a trick for. I suppose that's all anybody had, had wanted from her for a long time. I was hurt. I said, come on. I took her to Ruby's on 144th Street. Ruby was a chick I knew who, who was dealing drugs. I said, look, you can, get, you can get high right here. I told Ruby who Sugar was. I introduced uh, Sugar to her. I told her I wanted to get uh, Sugar high. Ruby said, no, I'm surprised. Damn, Sonny, you sure waited a long time to start dabbling, didn't you? I said, no, baby. It's not for me. It's for Sugar. She said, oh, oh, yeah? She looks like she's in a bad way. Um, Ruby told us to sit down in the living room. She had a bent-up spoon that she cooked stuff in uh, for the poison people. She cooked some for Sugar. While Sugar was, was waiting for her to cook, uh, I asked her, Sugar, what's been happening? The last time I heard about you, you were dancing with a popular troupe, and you were doing good. Yeah, I was dancing, but I haven't done any dancing in a long time. Uh, I guess not. What happened? You were doing good. You had finished high school. I thought you were really going to do things. You were a damn good girl. I asked her what had happened to the young cat that she had eyes for when I wanted her to be my woman about five years ago before. Oh, that was just one of those childish flames that burned itself out. Yeah, I heard, I heard you'd gotten married. Uh, was it to him? No, it wasn't to him. He, he, wasn't, no, he wasn't mature enough for anybody to marry. Well, what happened with the marriage? Uh, it's a long story, Claude, but I guess I owe it to you. No, babe, you don't owe me a thing. Save it, if that's the, the way you feel about it. No, I want to tell you. <clears throat> I want to tell you anyway. I guess you're the one uh, I've been waiting to tell it to. Do you remember a boy on 149th Street by the name of Marvin Jackson? Uh, no, I don't. No I, no, I don't know him. Anyway, he used to be in a lot of trouble, too, around the same time that you were raising all that hell. I think he was a year or two older than you. When you were at Warwick, he was at Kaksaki. He came out about a year after you did. He was a lonely sort of guy. He seemed to really need somebody. Claude, you know what I think? I think all my life I've been looking for somebody who needed somebody really bad and who could need me. You could need, who could need all of me and everything that I had to give him. I said, yeah, baby, I think I know. We got married in, in 1955 for about a year. We were happy. Marriage was good. I thought this was something that would last and last for a long time. Yeah. Claude, I hope you don't, you don't have any place to go tonight. The first thing I, I, I want to do after I get high is go down and turn a trick and get some money. Look, girl, stop saying that. <coughs> stop saying that before I beat your ass. She looked at me and smiled and said, yeah, won't you do it? I think I'd like that just for old time's sake. And she went on, and she went on with telling me about marriage. For the first year, we were happy. She was working, and I was working for about a year. He started going out nights and staying real late. He'd get up out of bed at 1 o'clock in the morning, go out, and come back about 4 or 5. At first, I thought it was another woman or something like that. I thought it was, I thought it was for a long time until I found out. At first, he just started going out and staying for a few hours. After a while, he started going out at night or early in the morning and not coming back for two or three days. I got worried. After a while, I couldn't, I couldn't work. I had a miscarriage about a month before he started staying out all night long. I was kind of sick. I was weak. And, and I would get worried and couldn't go to work in the, in the morning. Once when he came home, I asked him 
where he'd been. And he just, and he just said, I had to go out, baby. I knew, he, I knew he knew a whole lot of shady people because he'd been in street life for a long time, most of his life. And he knew a whole lot of characters who I didn't want him to bring around the house who he was respectful enough not to bring home. I didn't ask him too much about these people. I didn't try to butt into his business because we just had this understanding. We never talked about it. That's just, that's just the way we understood each other. I knew him and I knew he loved me. I think he loved me more than anybody ever loved me in all of my life before. That's what made it so bad when he started staying out all night. All the love I had finally found, the love that I had been seeking so strongly all my life was being threatened. It made me sick. I'd wake up in the morning and feel that he wasn't there and I became so scared I felt like a little kid hiding in the closet from monsters. My eyes just started pushing the water out. Heat waves would swell up and, and come out of my eyes in tears. That's how I felt. It wasn't a thing of body with him. It wasn't a thing of flesh stuff. He didn't even know that I had a body when I first met him. He didn't like me. He couldn't stand having me around. One day he had something kind. He said something kind. I realized that it wasn't just me that he disliked. It was everybody. And he was lonely. He needed somebody. And I knew that the somebody could have been me. I never felt so unalone, you know, until I met this guy. I never felt as though I had anybody or anything but him. I would have lived with him or done anything he asked. I would have went out on the street corners and tricked for him if that was what he wanted me to do. Because he became a part of me and I wanted him just that badly. But he really, he really loved me. He didn't expect anything out of me. That wasn't the worst part of it. Um, I thought he was, getting, he was getting money from me to give to another woman because sometimes he'd be going into my handbag in the middle of the night and he'd take money out of it. Then he'd be gone. Maybe he'd come back later that night or maybe, or maybe he wouldn't come back until the next day or two days later. It scared me. Well, any, well, anyway, one night he was laying next to me sleeping. I should have suspected it because I came up in Harlem and I knew what was going on. I don't know, I guess I was so frightened about this other woman thing that I couldn't see the symptoms. He seemed to be almost losing his nature. He would, you know how if a guy wakes up in the morning and he's a young guy, he usually has a, a piss heart on, but he'd be as soft as a rag all the time. I was wondering if it was just that he was getting tired of me. Maybe I was making him lose his nature because he didn't want, he didn't want to be bothered with me anymore. I just got so afraid of this and I should have known, I should have known what it was. Anyway, he didn't eat. Uh, I became afraid of this thing. I became afraid to ask him, what's wrong? I wanted to say, what's wrong, Mel? Uh, but I was scared, I was so afraid. He might say, look, I'm tired of you and, and I've got to get out of this thing. I thought I was going to come one, I was going to come home one day and, uh, and, he was, and he'd be gone. Uh, but it was getting to be too much for me to keep quiet about because when he woke up at night and started leaving, I would be awake most of the time. I'd be telling myself for a week, look, I'm gonna, t I'm gonna ask him the next time, but still I was scared. I was scared of losing him. And I'd already, and I'd already lost, it, lost him in that love thing. One night he got up and I asked, and I asked him, I said, Mel, turn on the light, please. He had been nervous. I hadn't been sleeping for over a week because I was, I used to lay awake and wondering if he's gonna go out tonight or maybe he's gonna come, come back to me. Our sex life had been dwindling away to almost nothing. I thought maybe tonight, maybe tonight he'll play with me. 
I kept hoping. When he got up to dress that night, I asked him to turn on the light. He was real nervous. He just said, bitch, go on to sleep and don't bother me. I was kind of hurt because he'd never said anything like that to me. We were real sweet to each other. This was crazy. I could never imagine him saying this to me. When he said that, I had to jump up and turn on the light. Uh, this is, um, there are two more pages. It's kind of long, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but, but very moving. <laughs> yeah, but, but wait a minute. It, it's, it's almost up. No, it's only a page and a half, okay? Uh, I, had, I, had, I had my scream already. I told you what, I timed it. It was only five minutes. <laughs> I told you what I was going to tell him about the other woman and all, and all that sort of thing. When I opened my mouth, I could taste the tears. I heard myself uh, talking to him in a real soft voice. I was saying, Mel, please tell me where you're going. He said, look, baby, go on to sleep and don't worry about me. Try and forget me. Imagine that I never even live because I think my life is, is over. I don't want to ruin yours. I'm going out tonight, and I'm not coming back. <coughs> I said, where are you going? Tell me something. He got mad. He'd been getting irritable for a long time. He just snapped at me, and he said, shit, if you got to know, I'm going to my first love. When he told me this, it stunned me. I felt as though I'd been hit in the face by a prize fighter. Everything was quiet. I was stunned, and I think he knew it. It was as though lightning had struck the house, and now all was silent. Then I said, Mel, I thought I was your first love. He just said, no, baby, you're not my first love. He said, stuff is my first love. I said, what do you mean, stuff? He said, you've heard of, you've heard of the shit, haven't you? Doogee, heroin? I wanted to cry. I wanted to cry, but it didn't make sense because I was already crying. I didn't know what to do. I just said, oh, no, no, it couldn't be. He left. When Sugar said that bit about he left, she tried to smile. I felt uncomfortable. Then she said, it seemed that I stood there in that dark room for hours with the word stuff echoing in my mind. I knew but one thing in life for a whole week. All I knew was that I had to learn about stuff. I had to find out what it was that could make the man I, I love, love it more than he loved me. Well, Claude. with a spike on the end of it. She was holding it upside down. I'd given her the $5 when I first came in. She handed the spike to Sugar, and Sugar paid it no mind. She just rolled down her stocking and pinched her thigh. I saw the needle marks on her thigh. She looked at me and smiled. She said, do you want to hold the flesh for me? I said, thanks for the offer, and smiled. But I just didn't want to help her get high. I watched as she, as she hit herself with the spike. And I thought about the, the fact that just a few years ago, to put my hand on those thighs would have given me more pleasure than anything else I was, I was doing back in those days. I could never have imagined myself saying no to an offer to feel her thighs. Those were the same thighs that had all the needle marks on them. I watched the syringe as the blood came up into the drugs that seemed like dirty water. It just filled up with blood, and as the blood and the drugs started its way down into the needle, I thought, this is our childhood. Our childhood had been covered with blood, as the drugs had been covered with blood and gone down into somewhere I wondered where. I wanted to say, Sugar, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the time I didn't kiss you at the bus. I'm sorry for not telling people that you were my girlfriend. I'm sorry for never telling you. She, 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 was a, uh, she had an overbite, and uh, people used to make fun of it. Uh, I'm sorry for never telling you that I loved you and for never asking you to be my girlfriend. I wanted to say I'm sorry for everything. I'm sorry for ever having hesitated to kiss you because of your buck teeth. Sugar took, <laughs> Sugar took the spike out, and she patted herself. 
She started scratching her arm and went into a nod. That's some nice stuff, she said. I got up, went over to where Sugar was sitting, bent over and kissed her. She smiled and went into another nod. That was the last time I saw her nodding and climbing up on the doogee cloud. Thank you. Thank you very much, Claude Brown. Itavari and Jerry. It's only when I'm asked to participate in panels such as this one that I give a whole lot of thought, conscious thought, that is, to literary theories or traditions. Uh, but I've always read. And what I read most and enjoyed most when I was young were biographies and autobiographies. Everyone from Kate Smith, whose <laughs> life I devoured at the age of nine, uh, sitting down one afternoon in Atlanta during the summer to people, the classics of the genre, uh, up from slavery, Booker T. Washington, and of course, I know why the caged birds sing. But this was a loving task to go back through these classic texts, and as I did re-examine those books that are part of the tradition of Afro-American biography, there is one overriding theme among many, and that is how I got over. And <laughs> if I got over, you can get over too. Um, as a matter of fact, before I, you know, I started looking at these texts, I, after, I, after I do readings, as I do from my book, I started saying, gee, when I finish reading, I think I'm going to burst into, you know, how I got over, you know, how I got over. It would make me feel better after reading some of the things I do, you know. But um, how I got over, again, is uh, embodied in most of these texts. And, of course, the tradition begins with the slave narratives. And um, how did they get over? Well, of course, it was this abiding faith faith in a force beyond themselves, God, religion, to help them through this crucible of slavery and afterwards uh, trying to manage, uh, chasing the illusory freedom that we saw in the North. But additionally, there were two related characteristics possessed by the slave who escaped and the freed men and women who endured a sense of what Sidoni Smith talks about in her book, Where I'm Bound, a sense of natural pride and self-importance. Um, to maintain that spirit of self-importance self and natural pride was a monumental task given the mass that the African-American slave wore and that our ancestors still donned daily, but many did. And there is a wonderful passage from um, Six Women Slave Narratives, part of the Schomburg Library Collection, edited, of course, by Skip Gates. And um, there is a section in the, um, in the narrative of Lucy Delaney that I want to just read for you briefly. Uh, she's talking about her mistress, Mrs. Mitchell. Uh, Mrs. Mitchell was scolding vigorously, saying over and over again, Lucy, you don't want to work. You are a lazy, good-for-nothing <coughs> nigger. I was angry, says Lucy, at being called a nigger and replied, you don't know nothing yourself about it, and you expect a poor, ignorant girl to know more than you do yourself. If you had any feeling, you would get somebody to teach me, and then I'd do it well enough. Now, you take the, it takes a bit of guts, you know, to do that. Then. And, and now. But that spirit is what I think is pervasive um, in the tales of those who escaped slavery and those who have endured in its aftermath. When you look at what is special about the tradition, uh, what is special about our tradition, um, if you compare, for instance, the biographies, the autobiographies of uh, Benjamin Franklin to Booker T. Washington, 
uh, you find that both of them follow this line of the Horatio Alger myth. Uh, the fundament, fundamental ethos behind that myth, of course, is that the hero is an economic materialist and uh, an industrious, self-made business person who views the world as material to be conquered in his rise to success. He's a public man, a man of action who sees his identity and self-fulfillment uh, derived through his social usefulness. But the difference between, as you see in the biographies of someone like Booker T. Washington and um, and uh, Benjamin Franklin is that uh, for a black person, their identity is inextric inextricably linked to that of the group. And um, you find that while Booker T, while Benjamin Franklin uh, has success and uh, uses that to aid uh, his society, his community, that is secondary to uh, what his goals are. It is primary for Booker T. Washington and for black people of his generation and since to see their fulfillment in, in satisfying the needs of the group. And um, one finds that this is still an issue in contemporary Afro-American Afro life. It's an issue for me. I mean, I'm in my 30s now, and I hope when I write my next book about my family, perhaps another 30 years from now, I hope I have something <laughs> you know, worth writing about, that I will have resolved some of the issues of identity that I struggle with and that other Afro-Americans struggle with, this duality, of course, that Du Bois talks about, uh, being black and being American, but also dealing with the socially imposed definitions of self that come not only as it did during slavery from the slave system, System and from the institutionalized racism pervaded by the larger culture, but also the definitions imposed upon us by our own ethnic group. Um, when one looks again at, um, at this tradition and the specific role it has played in American society, you find that because, of course, uh, black autobiography is tied to black culture, um, the autobiography is at the moral center of American life because the history of blacks in the United States has been consistently interwoven with the issues that determine the fight to realize the Constitution. The slave narrative functioned as an early form of protest literature. Its purpose was to expose the nation to the evils of slavery and to provide moral instruction. And through the vehicle of autobiography, uh, writes Sidoni Smith, uh, perhaps the most effective vehicle since it personalized the argument, rendering the experience immediate and concrete rather than abstract and general. That was very important to me. I was approached to do my book uh, by my publisher who had seen essays uh, in the Los Angeles Times about my family. I had been working on that material as a novel, but when I had the opportunity and I had to make the decision whether to proceed with this material as a novel or as an autobiography, I chose the latter, one, because they gave me an advance and I wanted to have the money to write the <laughs> book and I didn't have to go searching for a publisher, but at a deeper level, it was because I felt it was really important to show the complexity, the majestic intricacy of our experience as people of uh, the diaspora in a context that people could say, well, you know, this is not fiction, this is the real deal. These people really lived. This was a real experience that I cannot deny. And that was one of the reasons I chose to write this as autobiography. When one talks about what role this has played in the African-American tradition specifically, I think, as others have noted, um, it's provided a means of analyzing not only America's racism, but in the process enabling the writer, the narrator, to understand themselves more fully and to understand our place uh, in America, dealing again with this crucible of race. Um, I want to read to you a section from my book. 
I started to read something heavy, but I don't feel like reading anything heavy, and I don't think you want to hear anything heavy either. It's mm. raining outside, so yeah. let's lighten up. I'm going I'm gonna, to uh, read about somebody who provided an image, a model for me of how to get over. Her name is Ruby. My grandmother must be feeling a lot of holiday goodwill. She hasn't thrown a bedpan at a nurse or told a doctor to kiss her derriere since Thanksgiving, and it's almost Christmas. She seems to be adjusting to life in a New York City nursing home at just the time of year I'd expect her to be most recalcitrant. I'm worried. She is even speaking kindly of Earl Lord. <coughs> I saw him, she said. In the early morning darkness, she looked toward the foot of her bed, and there he was. My uncle, Alex Lord, the spit of Earl, cocked his head, pulled back his chin so it doubled, then squinted at her with one open, disbelieving eye. Daddy, here? Oh, yes, right here, she said, patting the bottom right corner of the bed. Mama, you got loving on your mind, he teased, then bit into the sandwich she had failed to eat for lunch. I sat in a chair opposite them, watching my uncle devour grandma's food while she stared into space, her back to the wall of windows that framed the East River outside doctor's hospital. A medical emergency, a blockage in her intestines had brought her here from the nursing home 10 days earlier. The growth was non-malignant and despite the blockage, better left alone given her age, the doctors said. As she sat upright on the edge of the bed, the windows behind her held a gray midday sky. A light snow fell steadily, gently pocking the river's surface, then vanishing, lost in the poisoned waters. She sat captured in the cityscape, but her mind wandered beyond its dimensions. As it did, her countenance seemed all-knowing. Her spoken, splintered thoughts seemed to say the past had been retrieved and made intelligible to her. She tossed a fragment at no one in particular. My mother, if only I had known. My uncle eyed her. Her arms were across, his arms were across his chest. He'd polished off the sandwich. And he called my name, my grandmother said, her eyes tightly closed. Who did, my uncle goaded. Your father, she said firmly. You sure, mama? She puffed up defiantly. Yes! she said, as if it were the answer to all questions for all time. Her head started to move slowly from side to side as she recalled Earl Lord's voice in the twilight. Ruby, Ruby, Ruby. Her head began to move like the heaviest frond of a tall palm, bending, yielding to a breeze only she perceived. Perhaps it was the warm breath of her gra my grandfather close to her face one night long ago. Ruby. He had hurt her. He had loved her and hurt her, but he had loved her, she said, and came to her that morning seeking forgiveness. I'd never seen my grandmother so, so sensuously mellow. Though she was 89 and physically deteriorating, she was mentally razor sharp and had never done anything that indicated she was out of touch with reality. Perhaps it was the place. She liked it here. Doctor's hospital was her style. She could look out the window and see Gracie Mansion. Here she was treated like the privileged woman she still thought herself to be. In this congenial atmosphere of quiet corridors, attentive nurses, and a friendly roommate, my grandmother seemed relaxed 
and open to myriad impulses from her subconscious. In her east side <coughs> nursing home, she usually sat in a chair scowling at the wall in front of her while her two roommates lay on either side of her dying. Her hatred for that warehouse of decaying flesh was evident from the bedpan she hurled at the nurses and her shouts of, kiss my ass, to the doctor. <laughs> but during my periodic phone calls to her from Miami, where I then lived, I had detected a certain resignation. My mother had confirmed this latest change in attitude, but to hear her speak with such obvious longing for my grandfather was most disconcerting. I'd always thought his name was spelled B-A-S-T-A-R-D <laughs> in her dictionary. He had been long dead, and they had been long divorced before that. Between their marriage and his death, there had been a series of adulterous affairs. She spoke to me now, but I only half heard. My uncle's teasing had finally broken her reverie, and she was issuing instructions for her funeral. It was a constant topic of hers, and by now, a family joke. Four flower cars, and no, absolutely no in-laws in the first car. <laughs> I ignored the familiar litany. I hadn't seen her in more than a year, and I studied her face now. It sagged, but her light brown skin was still soft as a baby's and wrinkleless. Her nose, with its African fullness and East Indian prominence and profile, was finally Roman, my Uncle Alex used to declare, because it <laughs> roamed all over the place. <laughs> her wide brown eyes were still expressive, registering all she saw, but their color now was a milky brown. I looked at her thin lips and remembered the words that rushed past them on late fall days such as these when I was growing up. Her sound broke our sleep long before the dawn. Tide and time wait for no man, she bellowed, <laughs> rousing the house like a Jamaican drill sergeant if we weren't ready for breakfast by 7 a.m. She'd been raucously rattling cake pans in the kitchen since 5 a.m. If she was up, you should be up. She wanted that kitchen clear for baking. She had fruitcake orders to fill. What a pain she was on a Saturday morning, but what a voice to rise to. The island lilt of it, the royal imperiousness of its tone, the sun and the queen were in every word. By the time I hit the kitchen, she was in high gear, burning sugar, dicing currants, pouring out the extra proof rum, sipping the extra proof rum. Be aware. The cake my grandmother made bore no resemblance to the pale, dry, maraschino cherry pot fruit cakes most Americans know. This was a traditional West Indian fruit cake and an exquisite variation of it at that. As a little girl and since, I've been, more to, been to more than a few West Indian celebrations where the host served a dry, crumbling, impotent confection and dared to call it fruitcake. <laughs> Only good manners prevented me from going spatooey <laughs> on the floor like some animated cartoon character. Instead, the members of my family would take a bite, control themselves, and exchange smug glances. Nothing like rubies, we'd agree telepathically. What Ruby Hyacinth Duncombe Lord created was the culmination of a months-long ritual. The raisins, the prunes, the currants, and the citron were soaked in a half gallon of port wine and a pint of rum for three months in a cool, dark place. <laughs> Even after the cake was baked, liquor was poured on it regularly to preserve it and keep it moist for months. When you finally bit into a piece, the raisins spat back rum. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you very much, Itabari. <laughs> That's wonderful. Arnold Rampersad. Well, you can see why I'm very clearly, I mean, I consider myself and have been considering myself very fortunate to be invited here with uh, such a stellar group of people who actually write what I would call creatively. So I, I, I do think I'm very lucky to be here. And um, I'm going to try to res restrict myself to about five minutes worth of observation on autobiography. Um, I was asked to speak for no more than five minutes. I was not asked to read from my autobiography. And <laughs> <laughs> I was going to protest until I realized I had, hadn't written an autobiography. <laughs> Didn't have an autobiography, although I've been feeling lately an autobiographical stirring. So I don't know what <laughs> I'm approaching this very literally. I've been asked um, to respond to certain questions. We all were asked, I think. and, um, and uh, I'm just going to go down the four questions and, and try to respond to them in, in, in some order, um, especially from the point of view of someone who has taught. I mean, I haven't written autobiography, but I've been teaching autobiography for a very long time, Autobi autobiography in black America, autobiography, autobiography in general. I guess those who cannot teach, we know that. Um, <laughs> what is special about uh, the tradition of autobiography? That's the first question posed by Pamela Pearson and Skip Gates. And as uh, we've heard again and again, I'll endorse it. Uh, and what is special about the, the tradition, I as far as black America is concerned, is the absolute centrality of the form from the slave narratives down to our own time. The white abolitionist Theodore Parker in the 1840s remarked on this new genre of, uh, of uh, slave narrative and said something about it which I think still holds a great deal of truth. He said <coughs> at the time, that the slave narrative represented the, the, the only truly original contribution of Americans to literature. And he also said at the time that you read a slave narrative and you find in it all the magic, all the original romance of what it meant to come to America from a distant shore and to set out uh, on an enterprise of recreation, of, of finding yourself, of, of a personal achievement. That, I think, is, is, is still true. I've been reflecting on what is particularly special about the tradition of, of uh, black American autobiogra autobiography. And what I've come up with as an answer is, is this, that it is remarkable that to me that autobiography has remained so central to, uh, to black American culture. And I think that that is both a good thing and an indictment of the culture as a whole, that these fundamental questions of who you are uh, defining yourself against a hostile environment should still be so important that they are perceived as being <coughs> absolutely central to one's life. I think we should, in the history of this country, have been past that point. Uh, but we are not past that point. So it still remains supremely important for a black American to examine himself or herself and to see what it is he or she stands for against the environment, against the past, against the present, against the future. It's both an opportunity and something, I think, to be, to be regretted. It was Henry James who said that it is a complex fate being an American, and I think black Americans would agree that it is a particularly complex fate <laughs> being African-American, and that complexity, I think, is reflected in the extent to which we write autobiography. Um, next question, what role has it played in American society generally? If uh, the it means Afro-American autobiography, I think it has been the primary way in which the African-American identity has been inscribed in American culture in general in a literary sense. It is the way in which the African-American story has been brought forward. And I can go back again to the slave narratives 
to Frederick Douglass uh, standing up before that convention in Nantucket and speaking and, 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 and bringing a certain kind of message to the American colloquy, the American symposium, if you like, that had not really been heard before. And if you look at the slave narrative origins of a text such as Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, you see again where the slave narrative is, is so supremely important. You come down to, uh, to Black Boy by Richard Wright or come down to Roots, uh, the enormous phenomenon of, Ruth, uh, of Roots as a, as a, as a publishing <coughs> and television venture, you see the way in which the American culture as a whole um, uh, seems to need uh, black Americans to step forward and speak the basic speech, the ba basic narrative of the individual life uh, in order for that life and the collective life to be, um, to be understood and recognized. What role has it played in African American um, tradition specifically? I think it's central, as has been said, um, to put it a little bit more uh, technically. I mean, it has served, as I think Skip Gates and others have pointed out, Afro-American autobiography, uh, the slave narrative in particular and its origins, um, these have formed the paradigm for all black American, all significant black American fiction. You look at something like uh, Invisible Man and standing behind it is the slave narrative, American autobi autobiography in general. Even if you take a text in which, which does not appear on the surface to be autobi autobiographical, such as say uh, a 19th, late 1920s novel, uh, Langston Hughes is not without laughter. The autobiographical impulse is really there very close to the surface. Um, the uh, paradigm for black American fiction, uh, what uh, has been identified by various um, uh, critics, theorists, as being central to the African American story has been the quest for freedom and for literacy. I think you would need to add to that uh, the search for family values on the part of, of, uh, of black women in particular. Um, as part, and, and all of, but all of those come out originally from the autobiography and the slave narrative. Um, what role has it played in the panelist's life? This is another question posed to us more specifically. Since I've never written one, um, I, I can't answer that directly. I think I'd like to concentrate on my experience as a teacher of autobiography and the problems students have had, apart from those problems they have with me personally. Um, <laughs> the first problem is the basic one of covering the vast field and recognizing its, um, its importance. Um, for a long time, slave narratives were simply not read or not recognized for being the, 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 the important genre that, the, uh, that uh, they are. <coughs> Um, they were lost in a sense, but uh, they were recaptured by people like Charles Nichols uh, at Brown University and Marin Wilson Starling and later on by, uh, by other scholars, including, of course, uh, Henry Louis Gates. That's one basic sort of bibliographical problem, recognizing not only the 19th century stories, but also the 20th century stories, the WPA narratives, autobiographies that come out year after year, down to our own time, down to the, the second autobiography of, uh, <coughs> of Sammy Davis. Um, all of the problems, I think, um, have to do with, uh, with, with the interchange between professor and student, and I thought I would just like to share one or two of them with you. Um, the first one is, the first problem I have encountered, and I don't mean problem in the sense that this is a problem. I mean, a problem in the classroom is an opportunity, um, and it is, it, is of, it is of opportunity that I hope to speak. Um, the, one is convincing the students of the significance, the weight, the specific gravity of autobiography, which seems to many students to be quote-unquote 
merely personal and exempt from intellectual rigor, uh, uh, lacking significance in some way. And you have to convince them, no, this is, there is nothing more important really than the story of your individual life. Um, they look at celebrity, or celebrity autobiographies and they see the form as being somehow hopelessly contaminated. But there are many voices, many stories, and uh, in one form perhaps one can offer a celebrity autobiography as a story of one's life, but in another form, in another moment, another approach, tell a much, a, a much a deeper story. Um, another problem is, um, is facing the political content of autobiography which uh, I mean, very often is offered as an absolutely personal statement, and yet still every statement comes, or virtually every statement comes uh, fraught with political content. And uh, getting, in, getting to that political content has been, has been sometimes a problem for students who wish only to, to be entertained, perhaps, or to deal with, uh, with uh, the surface messages of, of, uh, of autobiography. The difficulty of students, another one, are facing the psychoanalytical mode. Um, who people view psychology as a kind of basic violation of, uh, of individual integrity. And yet still it seems to me that when you have a serious autobiography, you're really being invited to view the mind, the inner recesses of the mind. Um, and I think that is, and I urge my students to, to try to, um, try to reach uh, for those <coughs> inner recesses, because that is uh, where the gold is, uh, to use a, a, a an unfortunate uh, um, metaphor perhaps, <laughs> but, but that's where the, the central meaning is. Um, another one, uh, and perhaps more important than any of those I've posed so far, has been the difficulty of facing the tension in autobiography between uh, truth, if you want, and accuracy on the other. And when I say accuracy, uh, the difference between truth and, and accuracy, I'm really talking about the extent to which we must recognize that autobiographers do not tell the truth. Uh, as, uh, when you approach the question of truth, from a certain point of view, where they, fra uh, they frankly manipulate the truth, where they sometimes lie, distort, disfigure for a variety of ends, which not all of those ends being noble or defensible. You have to bring students around to recognizing uh, what um, at least one major scholar of autobiography has tried to, to drum into our heads, and that is what's really important about, about an autobiography is not whether something ex happened exactly the way it has been offered to you or whether it happened at all really. What is profoundly important is the spirit of the life that emerges from those pages. The spirit of the life, a life lived naturally in the past, being offered up to you as some kind of example. And e either an example, a positive example as an inspiration to do good or as an example of what, what, what you should uh, avoid. Um, the, the spirit of the life being um, supremely important uh, the accuracy of, 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 of detail in autobiography being relatively um, unimportant. And lastly, and I do mean to be brief, um, to make way for, for Sarah Wright, um, th there's been a difficulty in facing the idea, especially in the last few years, that men and women have constructed seriously different autobiographical traditions within black America, within the world culture in general, all cultures, but within black American culture um, in, in, in particular for, for our purposes here and that the books must be read on their own terms so that there is room for a form such as the, the, the journal form, which is so often been favored by, by women, or which women have often been forced into, um, into, into using, um, such as, say, Charlotte Fulton Grimke's uh, journal. Um, I've had some difficulty convincing students of, um, of the, the difference between Harriet Jacobs' approach to autobiography and Frederick Douglass, and of seeing 
um, one as at least as important as the other, um, and that, uh, but, but, but in the final analysis also drawing them to the position um, that they must not only be read on their own terms along gender lines, but also I think finally critically against, against one another. The field of autobiography, black autobi autobiography, is extraordinarily rich. We've talked about it as being central. Just to list a few of the texts that I would consider to be, to be of great importance, Equiano's autobiography, Gustavus Vasa's autobiography. You may say, well, he's not really American, and I say that he's too good to be left out. We'll draw him in, in, <laughs> draw him in, in any case. Frederick Douglass, on one hand, the narrative, or, or my, uh, the, uh, my bondage and my freedom, the second one, not the third, but certainly the narrative, 1845, of Frederick Douglass. Harriet Jacobs', Jacobs Incident in the Life of a Slave Girl, supremely important, edited by Jean Fagan Yellen in particular. Booker T. Washington's autobiography, Up From Slavery, very important. Maybe you don't consider The Souls of Black Folk uh, autobiographical or autobiography, but it contains enough autobiographical references uh, so imbued with a rich personal spirit that I think it should be um, uh, read in that way. Then a brace of books that came out around 1940. There seems to have been very little in the 30s, but around 1940 you have <coughs> Langston Hughes's The Big Sea, which appears to be a rather superficial work, but um, I have argued elsewhere that, uh, that, it, that b behind all those uh, smiles of that, uh, that sense of laughter that Langston Hughes throws up at you, is a very, is a deeply serious purpose and a commitment <coughs> to an African-American audience that is well worth looking at. Uh, Black Boy by, um, by Richard Wright in 1945, um, Dusk of Dawn, uh, W.B. Du Bois's highly considered, highly wrought autobiographical statement in which he tried to tell not only his autobiography, but as the subtitle says, the autobiography of a concept of race. Mm -hmm. And Zora Neale Hurston's highly problematical book, Dust Tracks on a Road, which uh, is a disappointment to, to, uh, to many people, to people who love and even adore uh, their eyes are watching God, but which presents a, a spirit of, of freedom, a, 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 an individual in quest of a certain kind of empowerment that is beyond, it appears to be in certain ways beyond race and class. I mean, that's a book that, that should be read. And then later on, mm -hmm. um, I don't want to make invidious comparisons, but, but Malcolm's autobiography, Manchild in the Promised Land, uh, the Caged Bird, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, uh, uh, Roots, Anne Moody's Coming of Age in Mississippi, Audrey Lord Zammy, and, um, and, and the list goes on and on, and uh, just to come back full, to come full circle as it were, uh, our life is such that w one thing we can be sure about, uh, we will be writing more and more autobiographies because it will be essential to continue to redefine ourselves against a hostile environment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Arnold. Sarah Wright. Well, tonight I've chosen six contemporary and major writers of African-American descent who have written biographies to illustrate the overwhelming impact of their being people of color has played in their lives. Now, I think that I ought to cut this, but I'll try to read rapidly. Take um, your time. Keep it all here. You know, I, you know, consider them very carefully. There, I believe it is safe to say, with us from the moment of birth, <coughs> and the preferences and treatments meted out to us by others on account of color are impressed upon our minds before we can even shape words to express it. It is no wonder then, considering the fact 
that the color of our skin determined whether or not we were enslaved or not, and even after the slaves were free, determined whether or not we were sentenced to second-class citizenship and all the discriminatory practices at the society developed to make sure we stayed second-class citizens. It is indeed no wonder that our writers concern themselves with these genocidal practices, for there our lives were at stake in a very real sense. The fight for our lives was and still is, in a great many instances, right at hand. This, then, is the most crucial part of our literary tradition. It is then a bit unsettling to read, and start out with Zora Neale Hurston, uh, Zora Neale Hurston's most infamous statement in her now famous autobiography, Dust Tracks on the Road, with reference to the race problem. She boldly states, I was and still am a sick of the subject. This then sets her apart from all the black writers who preceded, preceded, and I might add, come after Mrs. Hurston. Her flamboyant declaration, however, sounded the death knell for the creative life which up to this point produced five books of considerable merit, her sixth one being the one from which the quotation is taken. She did, however, produce another novel, Seraph on the Shwani, with all white characters, and this work was her least successful. Her efforts after that were mainly journalistic and highly opinionated. She was a woman of intense contradictions and conflicts, particularly on questions of race, religion, and politics. But although she raised against such terms as race consciousness and race pride and race leadership and race whatever, wherever you find it, and so on, her work was markedly that of a black woman, and it was about black people in the most intimate sense. And her biography is almost consumed with this consciousness. Richard Wright stands as almost a complete opposite to Zora Neale Hurston in his autobiography, Black Boy. His powerful piece of work establishes him, at least superficially, as a supreme commander of aesthetic forces galvanized to defend whole human being, the whole human beingness of the black male. It took Margaret Walker in her semi-autobiographical book entitled This Is How I Wrote Jubilee to challenge the more popular conception of right as a seminal force in the rise of black militancy. In fact, in her estimation, he is a secular existentialist whose identification is so far removed from the average black man as to render him almost a completely unsympathetic person. And I quote this passage from Wright's Black Boy to illustrate uh, this sense that she arrived at, that he was uh, just about unsympathetic to black men in particular and maybe the whole black society, the problems which we're experiencing, etc. Um, and this is the beginning of the quote, and I'll tell you when I finished it. After I had outlived the shock of childhood, I'm quoting Richard Wright now, after the habit of reflection had been born in me, I used to mull over the strange absence of real kindness in Negroes, how unstable was our tenderness, how lacking in genuine passion we were, how void of hope, how timid our joy, how bare our traditions, how hollow our memories, how lacking we were in those intangible sentiments that bind man to man, and how shallow was even our despair. And so on he goes. Richard Wright goes on and puts down blacks, especially men, one after the other. 
And I myself, you know, find this an extremely trying passage to read. It is uh, powerful, but uh, he has not one positive thing to say, not one. The only thing that redeems Wright in our estimation is that he does place blame for this abominable condition on the slavery we have endured. Margaret Walker, after pointing out that Richard Wright attributed every positive <coughs> force in his life to white people, goes on to tell us that he admired no black writer and none were his personal friends. We, not, it doesn't appear that many of us know this, but it happens to be true. Margaret Walker, after pointing out that Richard Wright attributed every positive force in his life to white people, goes on to tell us that he admired no black writer and none were his personal friends. I repeat it myself. My eyes are not that good, so I'm, <laughs> I go back and I read the same thing over again, but it's all right. <laughs> Margaret Walker comes through as perhaps the most humanistic writer of our time. Her monumental poem, For My People, I would venture to say, has become as meaningful as a national anthem for her race. She says, a black writer, therefore, has a heritage of fighting for freedom, for the liberation of mind and spirit, from the hideous bondage of racism and all shackles of fearful prejudice. She claims further that for more than 350 years, Afro-Americans have created a distinctive humanistic and culturally indigenous art in this country. She maintains that this art has an emotive content, a human representational nature, a stylized abstraction that is typical of the black cultural dynamism descended from Africa. She is decidedly on the side of championing and saving a beautiful people, a noble people, a great people, our black people. She discusses quite a few black writers in her book, and she noted, as did I, that Imami Emiri Baraka and his, and his genius. His biography entitled Leroy Jones Amiri Baraka is marvelously done, especially in the beginning chapters. He has wedded the diction of himself, a growing child at that time, with story, and it works amazingly well, keeping us totally engaged. His concluding chapters do, come off with, do not come off with such virtuosity, but they are quite good. Uh, um, the dominant theme in his life story is his battle for life, totally unfettered. That this is not, not so, that evil and corruption are dominant, that we are still suffering from the assaults of economic and social injustice, a kind of modified slavery, if you will, all are of deep concern to Mr. Baraka. The terrible way in which color has been used to enforce the claim of this system, the claims of this system, is a source of great anger. He uses the colors white, yellow, brown, black throughout his, this riveting tale as being synonymous with evil, hostility, cold, liberal, fraternal, warm, humanistic, and so on. They are woven in all activity throughout the book and often substitute for class designations such as upper class, middle class, lower class, etc. This is a political autobiography, but aren't they all? One thing can be said for Mr. Baraka is that he is on the side of the angels, for he is clearly a humanist, and he sees clearly and articulates it vehemently that his black brothers and sisters are victims in an unholy and vicious war. He means to help change this around. In Maya Angelou's second book of her fourth, thus far, in her magnificent autobiography, Gathered Together in My Name is the name of the book, 
We again see how critically important a role color plays in our lives. There is a scene almost at halfway juncture in which she describes her entrance and visits to Stamps, Arkansas. And I quote from her. She says, when I glided and pulled into White Town, there was a vacuum. The air had died and fallen down heavily. I looked at the white windows, expecting to see curtains lose strained positions and resume their natural places. But the curtains on both sides of the street remained fixed. Then I realized that white women were missing by my halting, but definitely elegant advance on their town, on their white town. You will notice that she has called Stamps, Arkansas, White Town. And the windows in the houses on the road to Stamps are white windows, and the women behind them are white women. She comes to the general store and there obtains a sewing pattern. She has dressed herself impeccably for this shopping trip. She is very well-mannered, but is treated with hostility and ordered about by two white women clerks in the store. Her reaction is explosive. I quote, I'll slap you in the middle of next week if you even dare to open your mouths again. Now you take that filthy pattern and stick it you know where. With that, she sails in the summer heat and walks all three miles home to her beloved grandmother without stopping. But the news of her behavior in town had gotten home first. Her grandmother, in great fear of the Ku Klux Klan's invasion, slaps her and quickly and, and tearfully, ships her and the baby off to San Francisco again and ships her and the baby off to San Francisco again. She says that she raged on the train, that white stupidity could so dictate her movements that she, in quotes, looked unsheathed daggers at every white face she saw, close quote. And on she goes, but her life has changed suddenly, unexpectedly, and all, for all she knew, dangerously. She had certainly done it thus far with splendid courage and creativity. Lastly, it is Langston Hughes to whom I will refer. The brevity of my remarks will in no way suggest any lessening of the great impact this great poet had, and a playwright, novelist, Langston was everything, and still has, he's had and still has upon my life and my writing. To visit Langston Hughes is like going home again, home again to safety and security, to warmth, to abiding concern, and to hope. The tenderness, perhaps I should say, the generous gentleness toward all life, even at that which, about towards which she is angry, speaks volumes. The painstakingly simple clarity of his diction strips us of all pretensions. Even of his pain, he spoke gently. When his patron, an old and immeasurably rich white woman who lived on Park Avenue, dismissed him, leaving him broke and destitute. Of that incident, he says in his autobiography, The Big Sea, she wanted me to be primitive and know and feel the intuition of the primitive. I was only an American Negro who loved the surface of Africa and the rhythms of Africa, but I was not Africa. I was Chicago and Kansas City and Broadway and Harlem. So in the end, it all came back very nearly to the old impasse of white and Negro again, white and Negro, as do all relationships in America." Close quote. This, then, is a gist of the story, the main peg upon which the soul of our society is hung. In the words of the great philosopher, writer, and statesman, William 
Edward Burkhart Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois. <laughs> That's easier. <Okay. laughs> the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, close quote. In our writing, it is eminently clear. It is pervasive in all of our writings because it is the most threatening aspect of identity in the society. Our lives can be snuffed out simply and arbitrarily because we are people of color. The quality of our, of our existence is determined by laws by which we are governed, and these laws in part control the economy of the nation. Wages, prices, earning opportunities, etc., are controlled by these laws. It is almost too obvious to the mention that the 300-year history of slavery and the 127 years of largely unequal pay places us in a woefully subordinate position in the society. Our lives are more grievously in danger thereby than the white groups. The infant mortality rate in Harlem, New York, USA, today is as large as some of the poorest third world countries. These are but some of the factors determining the content of our autobiographies as I see it. I would say then that race and race relations, social I would say then that race and race relations, social protest, economic relationships, blaming, struggling, overcoming, and never giving up the ghost of hope are all parts of our tradition. These are certainly some of the things that inspire me. I am not limited to these subjects, however, but enough on that subject now. America has paid attention to autobiographical writing and has overhauled much of its thinking because of the same. Eldridge Cleaver's Souls on Ice comes to mind. Claude Brown's Man Child in the Promised Land. And which by some is credited with having started the Civil War. All had amazing impact on the American mind. These are but three, but there are many more. We look forward to acquiring more insight, more direction, and certainly more hope from the autobiographies to come. Thank you very much. Thank you. Would you uh, care to read um, okay, yeah. briefly? <laughs> we're, we're, let's see, what time is it? Where's Pamela Pierce? Pamela, how's our time? Okay. Okay. Um, Ms. Wright, did you want to read yeah, yeah. briefly? She's going to read and then we'll do questions. Okay, okay thank okay. you. I'm going to read uh, just some pages from the first chapter. I hate to cut it up like this. Oh, boy, you're going to be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're really going to be sorry. But I hope that you'll feel inspired enough to uh, go and purchase it <coughs> in the bookstores. <laughs> if you have any trouble finding it, you call the Feminist Press. They're right here in Manhattan. And they'll tell you where to go. Okay. But it's in the bookstores around. I like that, yeah. <laughs> okay. So some, this is the first chapter in, in the novel. Some, sometimes the sun will come in making a bright yellow day. But then again, sometimes it won't. Mariah Upshur couldn't see herself waiting to know which way it was coming as she fretted to see through the sagging windows squeezed between her upstairs roofs. 
The bed with Jacob's legs sprawled all over her was a hard thing to stay put in. Strain cut in her face in such a heavy way, she thought, my skin must be sliced up with the wrinkles the same as an old black walnut. She touched it and found not a single line. She had the same tight skin, the same turned up nose that people used to say went with her high-minded gallop when she wasn't doing a thing but marking time on Tangier necks slowing up roads. Pyorrhea in her gums had taken all of her back teeth, but her jaw stayed firm and slanty, pretty as a picture of any white girls she ever saw on those Christmas candy boxes that her mama used to cut out and hang on the cedar tree in the walls. Little star light, star bright, twinkling angels, that's what Mama Effie always hung on that tree. And she told Mariah, you got to be that good and pure before the Lord's going to bless you with anything. But I've got a different set of eyes in this night, Jesus. If you'll spare me, me and my children getting out of this neck. Such a chilliness crept over Mariah, and she cried all down in herself, for she couldn't wake her children. She'd been dosing them up, up all through the night with a paragoric so they could get some easement from their coughing. Then promise you, me and the children getting out of here so many times, Jesus, you must think I'm crazy. But you ain't sent many pretty days this way lately. At the start, Mariah caught herself criticizing the Lord and said, excuse me, Jesus. I'm willing to do my part, just make this a pretty day so I can haul myself out of this house and make me some money, Jesus. I thank you for whatever you do give to me. I ain't meant to say nothing harsh to you, Jesus. You know I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. Then Mariah felt as if the comforts of the Lord's blessing spread all over her. Soft sleep rested so lightly on her eyes, and she was home safe in a harbor, warm, just a rocking in the arms of Jesus. And the spirit of the Lamb became a mighty fire prevailing in the woman's eyes, sunk now to dreaming, and she could just about see how this new day was going to come on in. It was going to sail up blazing and red and hoe a steady path on up to the middle parts of the sky. Clouds get in its way, it was going to bust on through them and keep on sailing until it rolled on up easy over the crest of those worrisome waves. Then it was going to rock a while, all unsteady-like, until it made up its mind that it was on high and it hadn't sailed through anything but some feathery nuisances. Rock a while and then turn all golden and yellow as it smiled at the cloud waves turned into nothing but some washed-out soap suds forming on the treetops what Mariah liked to call this Maryland side of the long-tailed dismal swamp. It was going to sit there a long time grinning and spilling those fields full of itself, making every potato digger, leastwise herself, feel good down to the quick, same as if it was summer still. I'm going to skip to the end of the chapter. I just wanted to, you know, you to get a little bit introduction to the chapter, and I hope that you will get the book and read it. Um, uh, 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 I like being a grandmother, it frees me. (laughs) 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 I'm running out to get 10 copies, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, well. Now, I'm looking for an appropriate place to start. I'll start here, just about two and a half pages from the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And in the chapter, my goodness. <laughs> uh, uh, she says to Jacob, now I'll start two, two and a half pages, about to the end of the chapter. 
Later in the dawn, she cracked her eyes again, and a little light did come in. See, this has been a tumultuous time, these pages which I'm skipping over. She's had conversations with her husband, and it's all very, very, very scary. Later in the dawn, she cracked her eyes again, and a little light did come in. October sun comes so late. She dug her chapped knuckles into deep, warm places her eyes made and lifted her heavy lids. She wondered sometimes how the sun ever made it at all, coming from the easternmost part of God knows where, down to lowland Tangier Neck. Lowest place on the whole eastern shore of Maryland, she did believe. <clears throat> Wonder was that it hadn't been washed away. The way that big, wide, bossy, ocean-going Nyaskin River keeps pouring water down into the mouth of the neck until deep gut swallows all it can hold and backs the rest of it out for the ocean. Orange ball bouncing on a Nyaskin sound, heaving and setting and hardly climbing up at all. Oyster boats tossing helplessly. She balled up her hands until they hurt. Jacob, I swamp it. Deep guts filled up with wind again, spewing out pawns all over the field. There's not going to be a cent made today. Every muscle swollen her craning neck. She swallowed hard. Last night's terror left a nasty morning taste. Nothing down here but death. Nothing down here but nothing. Jacob stirred. Death coming sooner or later, woman. What you all the time harping on it for? Children ain't had no milk in the longest kind of time. I ain't had none either. <coughs> I was thinking to myself I'd send Skeeter down to Banyas to get some. Jacob flew right into her. Don't send Skeeter nor nobody else down to Bannon's for nothing. I done told you once. I ain't going to tell you no more. And another thing, woman, I don't want to catch you digging no more potatoes for Bannon either. Tell me the where welfare people's giving out cans of milk by the case for. Shut up, woman. I done told you once. I provide for my family. Silence hung between them like the deep maroon drapes in Jimmy Jamison's funeral home parlor. She might have known he'd act like that, and there'd be a different kind of time. And the woman thought, there used to be a time when she could really tackle Jacob. She'd tell him in a minute about picking up his own trash behind himself or throwing his money down on the table for her to keep him, them and the children halfway going like he was throwing a bone to worry some pet dog. He, he'd throw the money down and stroll on out of the house, not even saying as much as dog. That's the least he could call her. Here's the money for this or that. And one day in time, she'd go into Jacob like lightning with, man, why don't you change your drawers a little more often and wipe yourself good? Any dog gets tired sometimes of scrubbing out somebody else's shit from their drawers. <laughs> that kind of thing would set him on fire. <laughs> but she'd go on. Sparrow, they tell me that Uncle Marsh Harper is about the cleanest man on the rocks. Tell me when he gets through doing his business, he wipes himself good with his glove then leans over in the gut and washes himself up good, and his glove, too. He's about the purest fool we got on the boats, woman. <laughs> Jacob would thunder back. Fool gonna catch a pneumonia first and last, splashing that cold water on himself. <laughs> and Mariah, she used to play a little bit, too. Did you say first in the ass, Jacob? Then he'd have to break down and laugh himself. But then he'd go on and give her a lecture about cussing how sinful it was in the eyes of the Lord, but those times were over with now. Now... Uh, let me go a little faster here. Uh, that was, uh, you know, recall of what had happened in the past. Now, um, she, Jacob, uh, uh -huh. 
She's, she's going downstairs to make a fire now and get the day started. She says, there was no sense in mentioning the welfare to him anymore because he wasn't going to answer, and somehow she couldn't help herself from wishing that they had some milk. How many times had she wished the milk in her breast would flow by the gallon, enough for all of them to drink? She could see herself, almost, pulling Jacob's bony, hurtful-looking face to her breast. But she was leaving Tangier neck, talked it over with God, taking her children and leaving death, and she wanted to take Jacob, too. Death's so close to you now, Jacob, you can reach out and touch it. But Jacob did not answer, nor move his reddish, tight-faced head one single inch. He just rubbed his teeth together over and over again, making a terrible grating sound. It's been a bad October ride. November's almost here. There's a time in the land. It sounded almost like a cry, and Mariah moved closer to him. Tears worked around in her eyes. Stop gritting your teeth, Jacob. Stop it, you hear me? Don't I'm going to give you a dose of bumpstead worm syrup to work those worms out of you. Cut out the foolishness rod, getting too near your time for you to be carrying on like that. Covers fell away from his bony shoulders, and he sat bolt upright in the bed. And then they have another argument. And um, uh, she sees that Jacob is, um, is suggesting that maybe this child is not really his. And um, the horrors of the night just before flood all over her because she's had a terrible dream. And um, she gasped to Jacob, me and my children getting out of this death trap. Tanned your neck, you can stay here, buddies, because we don't want you with us. He threw back the quilts. Mariah tried to catch something that happened in her husband's face. It wasn't tight anymore. It fell all to pieces. And though her hands wanted to reach for him, she couldn't bring herself to touch him. Her lips hardly, his lips hardly moved, cut out the foolishness rock. She wanted to gather up the pieces. If only she could do something nice for him, get up and fry some oyster fritters, open a can of corn. If she could put her hands on one, set his breakfast on the table, snappy and hot with some milk to go along with it, fool ought to know he needed milk. It would clear up the rattling in his chest, make him feel like singing, and she could call him Sparrow once more, for he really was a regular song Sparrow before his mouth got clapped down with hunger and worryation. But there were no oysters, for Wynne had bossed the rocks for two whole days, and there was no corn, just a single can left for Sunday, and there was no milk. The salt of tears burned through the chapped crust on her leg, on her lips, and she turned her eyes from her husband's twitching face. Ain't nothing down here but nothing. Yes, it is too, Rock. If his bony hand is one to make it across the quilt hills to touch her, why don't you tell it like it is, Mr. Jacob? But she couldn't bear to look at his torn-up face. Let go of my legs, Matt. She jerked herself free. You stay down here until the year 2000 if you can live for 70 more. You're going to pay off the land, huh, Mr. Jacob? Going to collect all the money that's due on your pappy's land. Pay off Miss Banny. Going to make the county give your school, give a schoolhouse to your children. Woman! But she couldn't stop. And if this child dies, it's going to be your fault. So sorry you were when the last one died. You're going to see to it that this one comes here in the hospital. Woman, and he shoved his swollen jointed finger up to her eyes. Just lift one finger to take either one of my children out of Tangier neck, and I expect that'll be the last finger you'll ever lift. And another thing, woman, child's dies, it's going to be your fault for lifting and lucking them potato baskets. Told you to stay out of them fields. Never thought you wanted this young in the first place. Sometimes I get the feeling that if you had your own way, you'd have killed it. All over her, it was cold. Nothing in her moved. But she stepped out of bed, snatched her black hair free of its pins. I'm going, Jacob. And the trembling-faced man said no more. Her head was nothing but a throbbing hunk of mostly hair with a little bitty brown face screwed down under it. Heaviest head to tote in the morning, Lord, heaviest head I ever had. 
almost had a mind to go downstairs and run a straightening cone through the mess up here so it would flow long and wavy like Jacob used to say he liked it. But I'm going, Lord. For a moment, she stared at the wall of her husband's back, wanted to tell him so badly how sluggish a child was acting, but it ain't his. Evil mind wanted to tell her. Nerves felt like they were about to give out on her. Jacob's back was a hunk of stone. She twisted her hair tightly into a bun again, pulling her face and mind and everything in her tight. Done talked it over with the Lord, she muttered, and she straightened herself on up. She bounded down the steps, pulling the big second-hand robe over her stiffened shoulders, worried to craziness by the stillness, sniffing, sniffling angrily at the morning mustiness of her body and the thought of the man, hitting her soles on the bottom steps to stir up warmth. She announced that her early morning darkness of the kitchen and the wind that crept in between the baseboards and the wallboards and the places she chinked and chinked until she wasn't going to chink anymore and the sounds of rats and mice annoying in the molding. I'm gonna make me a fire. Ought to burn this place down. She rubbed her bare feet one on top of the other, screwed them around on the coal linoleum. Kindling wood bent in her toughened hand, some so damp it would hardly splinter. She took the front lids off the big black kitchen stove and filled it with wood. The oil that was left in the coal oil can wasn't enough, so she went back upstairs and got the night lamp burning in the hallway blew the flame out and dumped all the kerosene in the oil chamber onto the soggy pine wood. Gonna make me a good fire. And she struck a match. In the gray morning, a flame shot up, up the chimney roaring, out of the sides of the stove, through the cracks between the other stove lids, out of the bottom grating, shooting last night's ashes all over her feet. There was an orange pain in her eyes, and her arm was on fire, and she almost cried, Jacob. But she didn't. She smothered her burning arm in the cavity between her breast and her belly, and with her free hand she crushed the last embers in the smoldering sleeve. Such a kicking went on inside of her. She stood still while her hands burnt, and the lashes of her eyelids fell down over her half-fried cheeks. She grinned real wide in the smoked-up morning light, grinned real wide at the sounds of rats and mice annoying and molding. That's right, baby, kick. Kick all you want to. The bony ribs under her heart hurt, hurt all the way through her heart. And kick, you contrary thing. Don't care if you kick my guts out. She cried as she greased her face down with Vaseline. That's right, baby, kick. Thank the Lord, thank the Lord, thank the Lord. And the grease wouldn't stay up around her smarting eyes. She cried so hard. Jesus, God, and all you little angels, thank you, Lord. She choked up and swore in the light of the quieting down flame. Ain't gonna say no more to Jacob about it. Just make this a pretty day, Jesus. And I'll go out of this house and make the hospital money in my own self. Gonna get my children out of this Tangier neck. Her greasy lips pursed in determination as she went out to the corn house to slice off the last slab of fat back, not even wrapping herself up good from the wind. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now we have time for about 10 minutes for questions. Um, Pamela, I want you to come down here to that microphone to ask your, your questions, please.
address my question to Mr. Brown. <clears throat> Mr. Brown, I thought that uh, Man Child in the Promised Land was a brilliant book. But I noticed that uh, years later, the Times paid you to go and revisit Harlem. I felt the passion of Manchild of the Promised Land and your love for Harlem, but with the revisit of Harlem, I didn't feel it there. I didn't think it was genuine. Can you comment on it? Yeah, the Times didn't pay me to go and revisit Harlem. <laughs> See, I was never out of Harlem. The Times uh, asked. No, well, wait, wait. I meant revisit for the readers of the New York Times, of course. New York Week. No, no, yeah, I wrote an article right. on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, on. It wasn't really on Harlem, <coughs> but it was on uh, adolescent crime in urban America. And um, yeah, what did you want me to comment on it? <laughs> <laughs> You know that much about Harlem and, and the you youth there? Well, no, you did well with work. Where is, well, my question is, don't you have to be involved, in, or do you as a writer have to be involved directly in something in order No, not necessarily. Not necessarily if you're a good writer, but uh, I just happened to have been involved in what I was writing about oh. at the time. Um, everything that was in that article about, uh, as you said, about Harlem, it wasn't really about Harlem. It was about adolescents involved in urban crime. And it was about Harlem, USA. Harlem is not merely a geographical uh, location. Harlem is a culture, more so than anything else. Harlem is a place called Roxbury in Boston. It's a place called Huff in Cleveland. It's a place called the West Side and the South Side in Chicago. Uh, it's a place called Watts in L.A. And what makes it Harlem is that if you go to these places, you'll see that they have a common culture. You'll find that uh, if you go into the uh, restaurants in those communities, they'll have the same things on the menu. They'll have the same things on the jukeboxes. The kids will be doing the same dances. They'll be listening to the same songs. They'll be using the same slang, and all of that becomes just Harlem, okay? Um, now, when you talk about not knowing about Harlem, it's like everything that was in there, that was in that article, was um, well-documented and was something that I had lived in. You know, people like to, to say, uh, when did you go uh, what, what happens now when you go to Harlem? <coughs> and I could never understand why they feel that I left. What ethnic change of Harlem? Yeah, but oh, okay, but look, what's yeah, but what's that got to do with the fact that the people that I wrote about who were adolescents committing crime were committing those crimes for the same silly reasons that they're doing it today?
Yeah, so who said it did? <laughs> who said it did? That's not what, did you read the article? <laughs> okay, I think. Okay, thank you, thank you. I think we have to go on to our next question. Okay, I'd like to say that I really enjoyed the panel from everyone, and I wanted to ask uh, Mr. Rappersett a question about the autobiographical form. Um, is it possible that in doing the autobiography, I haven't read your book yet, but uh, in doing it, can you somehow uh, use as an example something like what Gertrude Stein had did with uh, the autobiograph autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, and you know somehow you know take the first person narrative like Miss Wright did in her book, and somehow blend it in with the autobiography to um, kind of make it more alive. You know I've noticed. You know, lately, you know, you read book reviews and things like that. People say, oh, the autobiography is like a dead book. You know, a lot of people just don't like to read them anymore because it doesn't come alive. And I've, I've noticed it, you know, in just like <laughs> the last 10 years, you know, the autobiographies that I would just go in the library and read something like that. You know, a lot of times, you know, they start out like very slow, then it picks up. But is it possible that you can do the narrative somehow? Like, you know, her narrative was like very vivid and up-tempo. Is it possible that you can somehow use the first person, you know, what Gertrude Stein had did? And third person. Third, well, third person, yeah. <laughs> and, and use it like that for the autobiography form? Well, I'm sure other people would like to answer, or can answer the same question, but uh, I would advise you not to use the form that Gertrude Stein <laughs> did in the same way because she did it so well, you're going to come off looking <laughs> But But uh, it's a very flexible form. I mean, I think that's the point uh, um, you're making. Uh, that's the main idea behind your question. It is a, an extremely flexible form. On the, other hand, uh, on the other hand, I don't think that any approach has been exhausted. I mean, you could uh, take um, uh, an indirect and oblique approach to autobiography. You can go dead on, um, straight on in, uh, in the autobiographical method, um, and you may see more fashion. It finally comes down to the quality of the writing, the ability of the writer to make uh, his or her experience vivid. And, um, and you can experiment with form in certain ways and get a certain amount of, of uh, octane or energy out of uh, the form itself. But, uh, but I think the form will not carry you through if you do not have the feeling and the literary skill to, um, to service that, that feeling. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Someone else? Can can well, I Sam? agree with what Ar Arnold said. I think it's, it makes no difference whether you use the first person or the third person. It is the quality of writing, you know, and the perspective you bring to the material. That's what you impose upon that material as an artist is what determines whether it appeals to you as some other writer, a reader rather. So I don't really think it makes much of a difference which voice you use in that regard. Ms. Wright? Or Claude? No, I, I agree with um, okay. and Jerry. Okay. Claude? That's enough. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to ask a question, if, if I may. Is that all right? <laughs> the, Itabari said something very interesting about um, how, the, the, when she was tracing the differences between uh, American autobiography generally and African-American autobiography, and she talked about the, um, that our sense of identity was a group sense. And she also said that, that there is in the tradition um, a characteristic impulse toward a larger goal, a larger ideal. And I just wonder if the panelists find that these two tendencies, these two trends as apparent today among our writers and within our ethnic group as we have historically. Itabari. Um, perhaps not as much as, in, uh, for, as for earlier generations, but I, I know just personally, 
and I'll give you a personal example. Uh, one of the things I've been talking about is I've, I've done interviews to publicize my book, Every Goodbye Ain't Gone. I tell people that one of the things I want to do is, is start a school. I'm very concerned with the issue of literacy. It's important to me uh, as a writer to make sure I have an audience. <laughs> and many of the people I want to reach most directly are illiterate. That's not just African Americans. We're talking about the nation as a whole. Now, I, I'm really concerned about that, but at the same time, I recognize that somehow in my psyche there is this it's been drummed into me and also from my experiences, I really believe that this is a need that has to be addressed that what I do somehow benefit my community, my culture. It's not enough for me just to write. I have to have my writing mean something, do something in the world. And I'm going through the process right now of saying, well, you know, if I, if I start working for a newspaper the next year or two and write full time, do I want to now expend my energies, take it away from writing to, to start a school immediately because I feel the need to do this because of some larger social calling? Well, um, for me, that's a, you know, that's a personal struggle that I see um, exemplified in other people's lives in different ways, whether they're writers or not. And frankly, I'm so tired from, from writing my book while being a reporter and doing a million other things that I feel like I've had a stroke, you know, like I'm brain dead. I was trying to call up some words the other day and I couldn't remember what they meant anymore. I'd like <laughs> lost my handle on the English language. And actually I'd like to take two years off and just read and relax and think, you know, and not go out and, and do something for the cause. But I mean, that's part and parcel of who I am, that's tied to my sense of self, and I know I'm not going to do that, but I have to constantly find some way to balance both uh, what are perceived as selfish desires and the larger needs of my immediate ethnic community and the society in which we have to live. So to, to answer more directly uh, Skip's question, for me, yes, it is an issue, and I think it is an issue of, for most people who have to struggle every day to identify themselves in a hostile environment, which has been alluded to by other people on the panel. Yeah. Can I just say something? Oh, yes. uh, just to correct uh, uh, an error <coughs> I uh, made just now, I mean, about Alice B. Alice oh, B. Tocqueville, of course it's <coughs> <laughs> It is first person, um, as the um, as the questioner said. I s mm -hmm. told him third yeah. person, and he conceded the point. But in fact, it is <laughs> it is first person. A little bit of pedantry for us. <laughs> <laughs> Claude Brown, would you, like, would you like to respond to that? No, no. no okay. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Was it first person or third, Claude? <laughs> yes. It's a long walk down. <laughs> Make it long now. I'm very happy to address uh, so many of you whom I know. Um, as a, a rather political writer myself, I must say that I am impressed with the uh, possibilities, although at great price, although painful, yes, uh, but the possibilities of the genre uh, of autobiography uh, to make uh, important political statements to make a, a, a commentary on the whole society, to hold a mirror up to the nation, to the world, as to what is going on in the country. And I, and I think it's very valuable. Um, so I, I think that the two, I don't think that the autobiography as a uh, rendering of the self uh, 
in black autobiography, it becomes a rendering of the self and, and the whole society. And, and that, I think, is extremely valuable. Now, I have a question that I would like to address really to all of you who have written uh, autobiography and uh, biography. I think you, you all can, can answer this to some degree. Um, what, um, what amount or uh, has there been any catharsis in, 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 your, uh, in your writing? Uh, has it proved cathartic for you to have gone into yourselves or so deeply uh, into the lives of uh, others? Uh, has, has it been um, uh, cathartic? Has it been uh, enriching? Has it been just totally painful and you want to turn away from it? Uh, what, what has been the result? Yeah. Uh, uh, at the outset of um, my talk, you may recall that I stated that uh, there were emotional rewards to writing an autobiography that were usually uh, uh, far greater than the economic rewards. Well, in my case, um, those emotional re rewards included a catharsis and uh, in coming to terms with the relationship that uh, I had with my father. I don't think it, I don't think it was too, too different from that of many inner city youths who grow up, uh, who grew up in my generation. You see, I found out that I was really puzzled by the success of Manchild <coughs> and couldn't understand why so many people found it uh, so interesting and worth reading until uh, after it had been published for about two years. Then I realized, you know, after getting letters from guys who were in the NAM uh, at the time, and they would, some of the letters would say things like, uh, was your father really like that? Oh, we must have had the same father, man. He must <laughs> biography of an entire generation. You know, and that's why it was so well received because people could see reflections of their own lives. Now, the uh, catharsis which I spoke of about the relationship with, between, between me and my father is that we always had a very uh, contentious and sometimes violent relationship coming. My father you know, thought there was something wrong with me. I mean, you know, seriously wrong growing up because I did things that uh, was uh, just uh, very hard to comprehend. From him, you know, he was from a hardworking background and all that, and uh, he was always beating me uh, nearly to death and trying, actually. He said, I'm gonna kill you, and, and I believed it. <laughs> you know, it was one of those things that if you're growing up and your father says, um, I think it was pretty typical, though. Most of my friends uh, had the same experience. He'd say, boy, I'm going to kick your ass, you know, until you got about uh, 15. And then he'd try it one time, and you punch him out. <laughs> and from there on, he said, boy, I'm going to cut your throat. And he, would actually, <laughs> and he would actually try it, you know. And so I always thought that one day he or I was going to seriously hurt the other until after Manchild. Now, when he uh, read Manchild, he didn't speak to me for about three months. And then, uh, you know, I'd, I'd come to their home, my parents' home, and I'd say, hey, Dad, how you doing? And uh, <coughs> he'd just grunt or get up and walk out. <coughs> Until one day, after about three months of this, I came and said, hey, Dad, how you going? How you doing? And uh, he finally spoke. He said, I don't know why you had to go and tell all that shit. And I said, <laughs> okay, fine. You know, at least the, uh, the ice has been broken. <laughs> and then we commenced the dialogue on it, and we really became close and friends. 
mm. only after uh, the writing and publication of Manchild. Mm. Great. Yeah. Ms. Wright, would you like to respond to that? Well, I haven't written a biography, I mean, autobiography, I've written about to finish a biography. Um, but I found a really relating to my characters, which I did intensely, um, it just made me t terribly painful. I don't know how to explain otherwise. I really identified with them. And I found it was very difficult for me to even um, talk to people after I'd finished the work. Mm. And um, I didn't go for a um, television show or a press conference or anything until a year after I'd finished writing. I hid. I was uh, just shattered by the whole experience of Mariah <laughs> Jacob and every, oh my God. <laughs> I said, I'll never get over this. But I thought, you know, people were sincere when they said, Sarah, you actually have to allow the characters to become you. And I really did it. <laughs> you know, and I don't think that this is good advice. Um, don't, <laughs> don't allow the characters to become you. You know, um, it, can, it costs too much. Um, but you let them come pretty close, but don't let them become you. <laughs> it's unfortunate then. This child's going to live. live. Yeah. <laughs> you knew already. Well, it's still living. <laughs> so um, it'd be 21 years this June. It's still on the market. <laughs> okay. So, I, you know, I, that's all I have to say about it is that, and I'm just saying this for the first time. I hadn't even thought about it before. I think that it's too risky. Um, to do that, but you know, if you're maybe if you're more mature, you can. But at the time, I wasn't as mature as I am now. Um, so I, I don't advise it really on general principles, especially if you're writing about so painful and desperately, um, you know, frightening experiences in the lives of people to allow the person to become to get into you and become that people. Hmm. It's too shattering. Okay. Yeah, well, that's where the cathartic effect, uh, you know, becomes very rewarding in that you're writing about these very painful yeah, things, yeah, yeah. and sometimes that's the only way people can face them. Yeah. 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 Well, it's okay now, you know, I, I, uh, I tell people in a minute, you know, go buy the book and say where the story is, and like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't mind at all, you know. <laughs> I need you for my promoter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> amen. Itabari, would you like to respond? Um, I think the act of distance, distancing, which is what the narrator does and what the autobiographer does for him or herself, uh, is a healing process. In order to, um, to, to separate yourself, <coughs> as I did in writing about some painful ex experiences, allows you to kind of order that, um, impose some sort of perspective on those incidents and therefore your own life and I think resolve perhaps many in, in chaotic episodes from, from one's past. Mm -hmm. To that extent, I think it can be cathartic. Uh, about 50% of, of my book, Every Goodbye and Gone, see I got the name in there too, yeah. um, <laughs> was um, appeared in newspapers as, as, as magazine stories or essays before it was compiled and rewritten and added to for the final book. Uh, so I had a process a cathartic process that went on over a period of a couple of years so, so that by the time the book appeared and people asked me was it cathartic, I kind of glibly said no because I had gone through it before. 
uh, the book was actually published. But I find, depending on the audience, and I do a lot of readings uh, to benefit shelters for battered women, when I read a chapter about my father who was psychologically abusive toward me and physically abusive toward my mother, I often break down and start crying because it's kind of, you know, you're, those things, you're in recovery constantly from that type of emotional, uh, psychological abuse. So that I do find myself welling up at times and when I have an audience that's particularly receptive, you know, and sensitive to those issues, I do become overcome at times. But it doesn't bother me. It feels good to have that release. And, and I got to the point um, of long before I actually wrote it, but certainly the writing of it helped, where I had forgiven my father, you know. And, um, but there was more to forgive, I recognize. Mm. And every time I kind of cry and have that welling up and return to the text, some more of that healing mm. takes place. So yes, it is in part cathartic. But primarily, I wrote the book because I wanted a larger audience to know and understand the complexity of the African diaspora. That was my primary reason for writing the book, mm -hmm. not as an act of catharsis for me. That was a welcome secondary benefit of it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, may Audience. I add something to that? Sure. I, I don't think most people write a book, you know, as a catharsis. I mean, if, if you write an autobiography, that's like one of the uh, natural effects. But uh, you know, it's it's like uh, there are many different uh, catharsises which takes place, which take place a after a book has been written, that you may not even be aware of mm -hmm. during that time. Uh, for example, I once when, when I finished my freshman year at college, I was back in New York, was getting off a bus, and ran into an old friend. And uh, he says, hey, man, what are you doing? I said, nothing. I'm just talking about what are you doing? Oh, he said, I just got out of Sing, meaning Sing Sing. He said, I did a, a tray on a nickel, which meant he had five years and did three. So I said, well, what's, you know, what's happening up there? He said, oh, man, everybody's up there, and we all, they all looking for you. I said, yeah, well, I, you know, I might, I said, I might make it yet. Said, yeah, if, if, you were, if you were up there, we'd be running the joint. Now, you know, and it's interesting. He says, I saved your seat at Kaksaki, I saved your seat at Woodburn, I saved your seat at Comstock. And by the time we got to, uh, by, by the time I got, I got to uh, sing, I said, well, this dude's not going to show. I said, man, I might make it yet. But now, the interesting thing about this, then we went on talking, he said, he said, yeah, you know, somebody said you've gotten busted in Chicago and blah, blah. But you know, what this comes from, you, you, uh, you grow up in the streets and you're supposed to go on up the line. These places were our colleges and prep schools, and what, what he was talking about. <laughs> okay, so uh, he says, you know what somebody said to you in a very accusative tone? And I said, no, what's that? No, he said, you know what somebody said about you? I said, no, what's that? He said, somebody said, um, so somebody said you went to college. And without even thinking, <laughs> yeah, and without even thinking about it, I said, "Man, you know how people are always lying on somebody about something." <laughs> yeah, no, no. Okay, I had I hadn't thought about it before. You know, I hadn't thought, and this was before Manchild, and I hadn't thought about it be before. But uh, you see, this was my Auschwitz complex. Like, why should I be on a college campus when all the rest of the guys I'd come up with, we'd done the same things, you know? thrown the same bricks, were in the different prisons in New York State. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, of course, I felt guilty. And I felt guilty until after Manchild. The interesting thing is that after Manchild, I met this same guy who just gotten out of Attica this time. <laughs> this, was, this was five <laughs> years later. And what he said, he says, he's, he's outside of bar. He said, hey, man, like, uh, <clears throat> I saw you on television. He says, wait here, son, I got to go get somebody. And, and show him, say, hey, man, this is my man I was telling you about. He wrote the book. Well, let me tell you something. This dude 
wrote a book and went to college in his spare time. And he was proud, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this was another catharsis, but this was something that, this was a complex that I had and wasn't even aware of, so I uh -huh. couldn't have written the book, you know, uh -huh. for that purpose. Thank you. Arnold, what about writing biography? Did it have a cathartic effect? No, not really. Really, for two reasons. Oh. One, um, I think I, f I sp uh, uh, this is something um, close to what you said. I mean, that I spent <coughs> a lot of my time in writing the life of Langston Hughes, uh, making sure I didn't identify too fully with him. I mean, true, he was romantic and intelligent and good-looking and so on. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was that natural tendency to want to identify, but, uh, but I felt that in order to, to, um, to preserve judgment, to keep in control, I had to, to keep him at, at, uh, at a great distance. I also was, in fact, doing uh, another thing, which was trying to have the reader achieve a sort of purgation of the spirit, a catharsis, go through some kind of harrowing feeling. Um, I don't know whether or not any readers did because I've yet to find anybody who's been able to make it through volume two. I did. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I think we have this time for two more questions. Where's Pam? Yeah. Two this more is, questions. This is for the whole panel. Anyone can answer it. Okay. What do you think of the novel form as a means of autobiography, as in Baldwin's Go Tell on the Mountain or maybe even Lonely Crusade? And why do you think more African-American writers haven't really used that form in order to say their story? Ms. Wright, would you like to respond? Um, wow. <coughs> why do I think um, African-American writers use the novel form to tell their story? More haven't. We're more happy? More have, more have not. More have not. Why, have, have, not why have not more done so? Oh, um, gee, I haven't talked to them. So, um, you know, it would be a, just a wild guess on my part. Um, I don't know that they could reconcile the outsideness of the novel with their inside person. I don't know that this is reconcilable. Yeah, because with a novel, you take so many liberties. You invent characters. They're made out of, they're composites made out of people that you really know, if you must know the truth about it. Um, and in a certain way, novels are autobiographical. I, I don't know, that's weird. No, 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 don't stretch it that far. No, don't stretch it that much. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> But I would say that it's not, it's not a compatible situation. Um, so I haven't asked any writers why they didn't do it. It would never occur to me to ask a writer that. But now I will, that you raised it. Okay, Arnold, to respond. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. I would say, if I had to guess, that it represents the downside of the strength of the autobiographical tradition, yeah. that um, yeah. a lot of uh, <coughs> people probably had been tempted to turn to the novel form or probably had, had con contemplated it as the natural way in which to present their, their feelings to tell their story. But then because of the strength of the impulse to write autobiography in America in general and in black America in particular, that, that interest got diverted into the sort of orthodoxy of autobiography. I mean, you can't have it both ways, I think. I don't think 
But, but I think if you examine the, the list of, of African-American novels, you'll probably find a very high proportion fall into that category uh, or, uh, that you would call vicarious autobiography. I think so, I'm mm -hmm. not sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, anyone else? Next question. Yes. Um, I've been trying to think about where autobiography, African-American autobiography is heading in terms of a new um, kind of multicultural movement that's growing. And um, I have a, a sense that, uh, I, I guess I'm thinking of Audre Lorde's uh, Me and um, Alice Walker's autobiographical writing. And um, it seems that they're trying to look, well, uh, let me just take it back a step. Ms. and Jerry said something about uh, autobiography is how to get over. Mm -hmm. And um, Professor Rampasad said something about um, that, ident that identity is a sense that, uh, I, I guess I'm thinking of Audre Lorde's uh, Me and um, Alice Walker's autobiographical writing. And um, it seems that they're trying to look, well, uh, let me just take it back a step. Ms. and Jerry said something about uh, autobiography is how to get over. Mm -hmm. And um, Professor Rampasad said something about um, that, ident that identity is being spoiled over and over again, almost as if it's a, a regression rather than a step forward. And it seems that the new Autobiogra autobiographical material being written um, is trying to explore exactly the, um, the cultural context that makes one, makes a black American have to get over or explore one's identity. And I wonder if anybody has a sense that, um, that autobiography is being used more self-consciously to explore the political contexts rather than in a regressive, <coughs> uh, I, don't, I don't hope I'm not presuming uh, regressive way of you know, oh, I'm having to explore my identity again. Yeah. Um, um, I think that uh, they've always been political, so I'm not sure I would agree with what you're stating, but one of the things I didn't state but was, was in my notes, I write about the issue of cultural diversity for the Los Angeles Times, and that's the subject of my next book. And one of the things I discuss in my book, as others increasingly have discussed, is what exactly is an African American? What is the definition? of an African American, what does it mean to be a black person in America? Well, I think it means a whole lot of things. Yes, we are people uh, of African descent who have uh, come into contact with practically everybody on the planet who have come here, and as a result, we are uh, Africans, we are East Indians, we are Native Americans, we are English, we are French, and I think, which is why it's important, the term African American, it's an ethnic label as opposed to a racial classification which was whose origins were pseudoscientific to begin with, I think African-American allows us the flexibility uh, of inclusiveness uh, to be able to acknowledge the varied strains that comprise the ethnic group. And that's one of the things I do discuss in my book, and one of the things that, I don't know if I come out with another one, as I said, 30 years from now, uh, I may have some more insights on because you know, given the fact that, uh, for instance, that um, I'm an equal opportunity flirt, you know, I could <laughs> marry a, a Korean for all I know, and my kids would be having kimchi and grits, you know? <laughs> and, um, and, and the people that I write about um, in California, I mean, they, their children do have sushi and grits, mm. you know? And um, it's very important for us to understand that because of the long hi history associated with colorism, which Alice Walker talks about in her, in her collection of essays, prejudicial or preferential treatment of same race people based on skin complexion. There is a fear of a new color caste system 
um, being mounted in the United States on the part of African Americans because of a proliferating population of mixed race Americans because of all the demographic changes and because we have more fluid definitions of race in America, people don't necessarily have to toe the line to uh, definitions that existed by law and social custom in the past. And what we have to ask though as African Americans, are we are we a hostile toward people who want to identify themselves more broadly than black or African American because uh, they simply want to avoid the stigma of being black? Or is their cultural reality different? Because after all, we are, I hate this term mulatto because it means mule, you know, but I mean <laughs> generically, we are a mulatto race of people, okay? But it's, you know, back in our generations, you have several grandparents who are of a different, you know, background, et cetera. These are people who are first generation offspring of a father who may have been African-American whose mother was uh, Japanese, okay? They have a different cultural reality. They were raised, as I said, on sushi and grits. You know, that's a whole lot of different stuff to deal with. And we have to examine both our prejudices and their reality. So I think this will, as, as America is changing, uh, and will change uh, with the coming millennium, increasingly you'll see these issues addressed in new ways. And not to go on forever, but uh, one of the questions that was, uh, was posed to us was what was, the, what was the impact of African American biography in our personal lives? One of the impacts of, of reading the literature as a child and reading such things as the autobiography of an ex-colored man was that I had a sense of this concept of the tragic mulatto, you know, and what it meant to be alienated from the group as a result up until the age, when I made a conscious decision at the age of 13, relatively young, that I was going to define myself as a black person, even though I had been raised up to that point in a family which was primarily West Indian, who insisted upon defining themselves as, well, you know, you're East Indian, and you're English, and you're French, and you're that. I was everything but African. I didn't know how I got to look like this, you know, <laughs> and had this hair and stuff. And, um, and of course, that was because, you know, you didn't want to deal with the stigma of being black in America. And as as the country changed and as the black power movement and black cultural nationalism held sway, I saw my mother change, begin to feel at ease about her blackness and identity to the point where at the last Olympics, she said, I'm so proud of those black people winning, you know. She was, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's a lot for a woman who grew up in her generation, she's almost 70, where, you know, to walk down the road in Tallahassee, the class at FAMU, white, you know, officers would chase her down and try to rape her. You know, she lived in f a kind of fear, you know, and so she was afraid to assert her blackness. And I made a conscious choice because I was impressed by that literature and I saw the pain and conflict in my own community for people who had alienated themselves from the group. But at the same time, having said that, we can't impose that definition on a new generation of people who have a different reality. So yes, these issues are going to, I think, be paramount in future African-American autobiographies. Thank you. What, time for one more question. <laughs> All right. Uh, is there any other country of the diaspora in which the autobiographies form such a large and very important part of the black literary tradition? Hmm. 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 Is Arsenio here? Hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, about, what about Africa? Uh, what about Africa? Things like Tell Freedom and Mind Boy. Yeah, but not to this extent. No, no, no. Well, in the first place, there's no other tradition that I can think of where the slave narrative, there's no other tradition of slavery yeah. in which people believe they could write themselves free. <laughs> maybe yeah. it was a good thing, maybe it wasn't, I'm not sure. But um, 
And I think it was that, that impulse. Someone counted, Marion Wilson Sterling counted 6,000 slave narratives. Mm -hmm. There have only been 1,080 novels written by black people since 1853. That's it. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, six times, five times as many yeah. uh, in this country. And I, I don't know about, do you know, does anyone else have any, how about another country? Well, they didn't have the same situation. Our situation is rather unique in the world. You know, we had established slavery. We were freed, you know, in the Civil War, and I don't know if any country went through this kind of experience. Well, not, not, not this, not this. They didn't have a, no, not, not like us. Although some of the slave narratives were written by West Indian slaves. Oh, too. sure, they were you West know, Indians. Obviously. But not as many, I mean, yeah. not very many were West Indian. Not like this. No, I think it's, it's a fairly unique. I mean, of course, there was slavery in other countries, but I think no the distribution of yes, I think the foundation for the um, American, African American autobiographical tradition had to do with not simply slavery, but the abolitionist movement, um, yes. the, the yeah. power of autobiographies in the, yeah. um, in the abolitionist yeah. fight, and mm -hmm. you had the establishment of a whole then store of African American slave narratives on which was built the subsequent tradition of, of, Af of African-American autobiography in a nation in which autobiography is highly privileged, um, uh, with from texts like uh, Ben Franklin's autobiography down to Mary um, <coughs> McCarthy, or whoever you want to pick as the, as the latest example of the autobiographer. So it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful... Um, uh, Nancy Reagan. <laughs> very fertile ground for autobiography to begin with, I would say. Well, it did produce uh, Equiano, Gustavus Vasa, in the, um, which is perhaps the first of the, mm -hmm. of the autobiographies. But what just one thing, you, uh, what one aspect of what you're saying that perhaps needs to be um, sort of emphasized, and that is that uh, you talk uh, repeatedly about the United States as being sort of the key country for autobiography, but there are two or three countries that make the same point about mm -hmm. themselves. The French like to say, well, Pierre Rousseau, and you know, who else? <laughs> Nobody else matters. And the British talk about uh, John Stuart Mill and others and say the autobiographical tradition is strongest here. Yeah. But I don't think that there's any country in the world with an autobiographical tradition as, uh, as, as exists in black America among, among blacks around the world. Right, and primarily yes. because the, the existence of the self was denied. And so the people felt they had to testify that, that yes, self existed right. over and over and over right. again. Well, what is the self was denied. Is that yeah, the existence see, of the I black see, self. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank our panelists. Thank you. Yeah.